0: welcome to from the ground up where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded sit back and have a beer with us well some of you are driving if you're driving keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show hello everyone good evening and welcome back to from the ground up podcast thank you guys so much for being here And listening to my voice it's been a little bit so i appreciate your patience waiting for me to get around and uh, put out another podcast for you guys what i would like for you to do if you could it would be really sweet if you checked out portcitypet.com have some substrates available as well as some animals if you don't mind waiting around for some proper shipping conditions it's been kind of hit or miss i was able to ship out a few animals tonight which uh just snuck it in there so uh, there's always a chance so feel free to check it out and see what animals Mm -hmm. i have available Other than that, check out Focus Cubed Habitats. So they are just coming up with new ways every single day to change the way we look at reptile keeping and change the way that we look at reptile enclosures. I just I think like they can't get any better looking and then they come out with new enclosures all the time like say if you're watching video right now this really awesome blue and black enclosure that they made as well as uh, check out this black with red splatter it looks like blood almost like uh american psycho if you're familiar uh really really cool stuff they have um and ashley and steven are great people so check them out check out focus cubed habitats on all the social medias FocusCubedHabitats.com. habitats.com <laughs> Other than that, that's what we have for you. I am excited to bring our guest. I was on his podcast, which is uh, the LED cast. So go check that out. The link is going to be in the description. I was on it earlier this month. He is an author, a business owner, a podcaster, like I said, uh, journalist, Cesar Torres. Welcome to the show. Hey,
1: glad to be here.
0: Of course. So can you fill in some of the gaps that I may have missed with that intro? Give us a quick uh, overview of who you are and what you do.
1: Thank you. You covered almost everything except for a uh, magician. So we'll we'll, we'll we'll fill in that gap. Whoa, whoa. Uh, <laughs> no, um that, that that's just about right. My um my my history is grounded in writing. I mean, I think everything I've ever done in my life came from books, reading, and a a lifetime as an adult of being a journalist. But something happened in my adulthood where I just went down the road less traveled. And so I have uh, since, since my 30s and 40s, I'm um, 46 now, uh, published uh, seven of my own books. I have two more coming out, science fiction and fantasy. And I spun off a clothing brand called LED Queens. That's why people call me LED, right? Uh, LED Queens. And that came out of the books. It's uh, fitness clothing. It tends to be a brand that's uh, mostly uh, magnetizing for LGBTQ folks, but it's open to everybody. And um, I think the, the magic part is that I think that w- everything I've done has kind of that through line. I think uh, curiosity for life, curiosity for books and knowledge is it informs everything that I do. So uh, that's about it. Oh, I'm a cosplayer, too, because of my books. We forgot about that one.
0: <laughs> there you go. And I think yeah. that there's a lot of overlap, especially with uh, snake people and just having curiosity and having different hobbies. I think we all have different hobbies. There's probably plenty of people who are into like cosplay, plenty of people who are into fitness, um, snake people tend to have other hobbies. So can you tell us a little bit of what got you interested in snakes? Cause I know that you're a, a new snake owner.
1: Yeah, and um, for me, the, the story with snakes really starts from uh, boyhood, but not the way that most of your listeners would expect. Uh, I was born and raised in Mexico city. So everything about my roots, my heritage, my ethnicity, and my race uh, is comes from Mexico. And as you know, the history of that country is centuries and centuries old. It goes back to the Mayas and the Aztecs. So when I was growing up, um, when you go to school, when you live in that country, there's such a wealth of knowledge about the Mayas, the Aztecs, the Toltecs. And snakes are a huge part of their mythology. They are sacred animals, holy animals, right? Um, but because I was raised Catholic, and just grew up in the Western modern world, you know, upper middle class, like it was just something that you just thought of, oh, well, that's just the mythology. But as a boy, I was obsessed, not just by that mythology, but also Nordic mythology, which has, you know, the Ouroboros, that snake, uh, Medusa from Greek uh, Greek legend. Uh, I just was way into that. I've, I even had dreams. I've had many dreams about like Medusa and snakes and they're not scary dreams, but I never, I have to be honest with you, I never permitted myself to think that I could actually have one. And that's because we grew up without pets. Uh, uh, Most of us in my family, I think, are allergic to at least cat dander, but uh, something like a snake seemed like a far reach. So I never even bothered to ask. Uh, On TV, there was a really, really famous entertainer. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s in Mexico. So this is nothing that anybody would have ever seen here. But her name was Olga Brinsky. And she was a really voluptuous woman, really beautiful, who would play the violin um, on like variety shows. So on the Sunday variety shows where you have all the pop stars and whatever, she would come on there and play her violin. But she was famous not just for being voluptuous and a great musician, but she would come out very scantily clad with a boa constrictor, you know, and she, this was like her thing, she, she brought it out. So, all these images, you know, it was just all around me and I just thought that they were super cool animals, but I swear to you, I never allowed myself to think, yes, you can have one, until the pandemic arrived. Uh, when the pandemic hit, as many of us can, you know, sort of confirm, the emotional impact The uh, mental aspect of what was happening, the shock, the actual sheer shock of like this situation around the world uh, really just, it uh, hit me to the core. And I live alone, I don't have pets. So I thought, um, you know, this is just it. I'm just gonna be living alone for a long time. But just like my books and just like uh, mythology and prophecies and things like that, I would stay up really late at night in February, March, April and May, watching channels like yours, like your YouTube channel, Snake Discovery, and some other really great channels that are out there. And I was obsessed, almost hypnotized by the way that handling looked on there. And I just suddenly desired a snake so badly, not knowing at all how to have one. Like I, I knew zero about it. I finally got the courage uh, in May. I actually ordered, um, what is it, the Sterilite? Um, a tub because I had watched some videos that recommended that for babies anyway. And um, I got it just, just just for myself. I was like, I'll just hold on to it because maybe one day I'll get a snake. And about uh, mid-June, one day I just had it in me. I was like, there's a great reptile shop here in Chicago. That's the only thing they do is uh, reptiles. I just went down there to look just to see what the prices would be. And I walked out with my uh, first snake, which is a corn snake. So it really was like dreams, books, and sort of like these, you know, visionary images of snakes that just got me to this point. I know it sounds very, very uh, very uh, magical, but it were. was.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, for a fantasy writer, I guess that makes a lot of sense. And I know that snakes have been in your books as well. Yeah,
1: um, you know, for anybody that wants to check them out and you want to see them at uh, at play, uh, my my book, Thirteen Secret Cities, is book one in a whole series that I write that is dystopian science, science fiction that features the Aztec gods. But in that uh, in that book, there is a gigantic snake, uh, probably the size of a skyscraper, which is hard to imagine. Uh, but it is made completely out of like a black substance, so it is like a Mexican black king snake. Imagine that, but the size of a you know of a house. And uh, it's actually one of the most important and uh, benevolent characters in the book. So as scary as it looks, because it actually has four eyes instead of two, uh, it's actually one of the most interesting creatures in there. So if you like things like Pan's Labyrinth and uh, Godzilla, you know, you're going to love that, that snake, but... uh, it's not the only one. There's there's uh, three more coming in the next book in the series. Because I, I, there's just giant snakes everywhere.
0: <laughs> and snakes are obviously uh, at the forefront of your mind right now. What made you think of or pick a corn snake in particular?
1: Uh, well, I you know, I guess what people call things uh, these kinds of people today in the last twenty years is like being a nerd or a geek. But I just consider myself a, a reader. So ever since I was a boy, I was just a deep. Longtime reader, I, I was absorbed by libraries and books. So what I did uh, this spring, as I was starting to watch these YouTube channels, I also did a lot of reading. Um, and the pattern that came up the most was that uh, between ball pythons and corn snakes, they were you know interchangeable in terms of being good beginner snakes. And I was actually thinking I was going to get a ball python. That was actually my first choice. But then I did I dug just a little deeper into some, especially some other channels such as yours and. Uh, some of the other ones I mentioned. And uh, it just seemed like I should go for the easiest. And the, at first they didn't appeal to me in terms of like how they look as much, because I thought that the ball pythons had a, like a cooler look. But now I feel very differently. I think uh, corn snakes have such amazing shape, the head of the shape, the uh, the way that they are a little thinner, uh, I like that. Um, And so I just went with what was recommended. I mean, what you're going to hear from me a lot is I just follow what is recommended. uh, Because I really don't know what I'm doing. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's something that's awesome as far as a perspective from a new snake keeper like that. Um, And knowing kind of your limits and what you want to do. And kind of obviously you did a lot of research. So honestly, if you could have kept a ball python if you wanted to let's well, be honest back
1: now i could have yeah or even uh what else would be something uh, i think i would even be bold enough to get like a, a, a hog nose or even a bull snake uh, and i think it helps everybody it helps that uh, i'm single i don't have children i don't have other pets so i'm able to focus a lot of energy and time into one single animal i think that's helped me a lot
0: and as a new person coming into the hobby, like how do you filter out information? Because I know there's a lot of information out there. Like how did you pick and choose where you got your information from?
1: Uh, well, that was really hard. I think with uh, with things that are written, you know, G- Google was helpful because it ranks the quality of some some of the information, but there, is, there has been an interesting dynamic. I think in the last 20 years, some of the best information on the hobby Uh, is actually on YouTube, video, uh, maybe even Instagram and Facebook groups to some extent, uh, which, you know, we'll talk about those, but um, what used to be something where I would have gone to the library and gotten lots of books about corn snakes or ball pythons, those don't really exist. They're not being written as much as you would think. All the best information truly is living on the internet. And so to filter it out, I think it helps me that I've worked as an editor and journalist for years, um, after a while you can get a sense of what content is there to, I hate to say it, to be provocative and sensational. And that's the content I walk away from. I usually try to go towards the, what seems to be maybe a little more boring, but more facts oriented. And that's that's kind of the, the pattern I follow. And uh, it's not a specific channel or a specific Facebook group or anything like that, but you can sort of tell sometimes when something is just so controversial that maybe it's best to walk away from it and look for the information somewhere else. Because then sometimes it does confirm it or sometimes it negates it. Uh, but for example, like deciding between a tub and a tank, like a glass tank. Um, for me, I went towards the biology, all the best information about the biology of snakes, just how you know they like to be in wet places that are really dank and that they don't move. Like out in the wild, I mean, they're gonna move, of course, right? But they really love to rest. And I think for most, young or not young but new snake keepers that's information we have to actually like pass through and actually understand it that they're not going to be like hamsters or bunnies or dogs like they love just chilling in a little dark hole and i think most what i saw is a lot of like young or new new uh keepers uh refuse to sort of see that They, they want the animal to be pleasing to them or to have habits that are you know, accustomed to the human, but my perspective on snakes has always been, especially now that I have one, is uh, we have to respect their biology, and they really—they're not here to entertain us or to be accessories. Like, we have to kind of just create a good home. So I bought the tub, uh, and I think it was a good choice. Uh, I'm already going to be upgrading into a tank uh, this year, but uh, for starting out with a baby, it made things really easy for me. I've never had any issues with uh, sheds or or feeding, so. Uh, You know, it's all subjective. Take it with a grain of salt. But uh, the deleting some of that controversial information actually helped me more, to be honest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's something in which people may not realize you just look at who has the most subscribers, who has the most views. Right. And oftentimes that's going to be the more entertaining and therefore the more sensational and the less, unfortunately, like. We have to be dry. I mean, my channel's pretty dry, let's be honest. There's nothing s- sensational or fun about it. Um, and I'll admit that uh, someone like Emily from Snake Discovery does a much better job of uh, being a little bit more personable and a little bit more fun and entertaining, but at the same time, completely informational. And, yeah, correct. and,
1: and I think she's a rarity too. I think yes. uh, she's figured out how to bring something out of herself to be entertaining for the camera, but I think what's very clear is like, she's just a person who's in deep in the knowledge. Uh, But then there's other great channels too, uh, where I just feel like, uh, you know, you just have to pay a lot of attention. You cannot skim through these videos and just expect to go, oh, here we go, problem solved. Often one situation or one fact leads to another Mm -hmm. and you just have to put it together yourself. And I think what helped me was being willing to experiment a little bit with my setup um, to try to figure out what the actual animal wants, what, what they need, I think that 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 was really like the first time I fed the the snake, I was terrified. And you would, I, and you know, you people handle the babies all the time, and they're literally babies. But it was one of the scariest things I've done in my life. I didn't know what to expect out of feeding it a pinky, you know. So <laughs> uh, all that stuff helped. I, I just think you know, if anybody like is sort of like myself, if you're new to the hobby. Uh, Just take your time. Take your time absorbing as much content as you can, even if you have to wait a year or however long. just You're better off with more information than with less.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then kind of like you said, it's all going to be an adjustment also as far as uh, what works in your home, what works where Mm -hmm. you live um all those different things the area of your house will will change everything and one of the things that i want to mention is that there are a few good books even though like i think to the layman it's not going to look as appealing because these books are probably like 20 years old at this point right but um if you want to look up uh, kathy kathy love has a good corn snake book as well as don soderbergh has a good corn snake book but we also need to be realistic. Uh, 90% of the new keepers are not going to go out and buy a book. First thing, it's a lot easier to watch a few YouTube videos and maybe look at a few blog articles or something like that.
1: Yeah. That's just the hard reality of it now, because I would actually prefer to read a book if I had, if I could, you know, redo it in some way where there were more books, I would just read books for six months and then get the stake. But, um, you know, video is powerful, and so are podcasts. Podcasts, you know, I heard of a few podcasts too. But there's just a lot of, you know, contradictory information. You, you really could look at almost anything about the hobby and find a contradiction in it. And so, uh, you know, luckily nothing bad has happened to, you know, my animal, but I know some people have horror stories from things they tried or just not knowing. But, you know, I'll just say it again, as, as much as I'm into science fiction and fantasy, and that's what I write, magic and monsters and mythology, uh, my belief in science has run so deep. Anytime I'm in doubt about what's happening, I just ask myself, what does the science have to say about this? Uh, and then that usually, like, makes me calm down and helps me find more resources that kind of confirm that. So, yeah.
0: And that's something that has changed over probably the last, well, I believe our hobby started very science-based mm-hmm. and then we started getting into very breeding, what made it convenient for the breeder. And therefore, yeah. we kind of got away from science-based information when keeping the animal. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, we're seeing it come back in in different ways. So um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great perspective as far as uh, a lot of times we are looking at what's cheapest, more most efficient. Um, because you're being taught by breeders, that's something I could also fall into as far as like accidentally giving people information in which, um, you could definitely do more for your animal than a breeder does. Cause I need to keep 200 of something. You're keeping one thing in your house. So like, yeah, it's also, you could do more, you could do less as long as you stay within the guidelines, as long as you stay within your temperature, your, your humidity and you care about the animal and it's well-being. I think, uh, you're good to go.
1: Yeah, I uh, I can see it now. I can also see how the the budget ramps up very quickly for this. If you want to take that more uh, sort of exciting route to to give it more, you know, in terms of habitat or whatever, and so that's kind of where, where my scope is at. I actually just just like people have to think about um, children, and trust me, I never. I I'm not a fan of people who call their pets like their babies or their kids. Like, <laughs> can I swear on this? Yes. Yeah. Fuck that. Like, I, hate I, hate, I hate, no, I don't hate people. I hate, like, the statements of, like, that's my mm-hmm. little boy, my little, no. It's an animal I respect a lot, male or female, you know, it's tons of respect. Uh, but at the same time, I'm already planning, just as if I was maybe, like, a biological parent of a human, uh, how much room is there in my life from this point until maybe the time I die to take care of one of these Or two or three really well because you know people get addicted right and i already have talked to you joe i'm like i already want another one i want another one but i I was i've really been trying to look at it and it's not so much budget per se it's much more of the attention that can go to the animal's life Uh, or if something happens to me are there people that are in backup who can adopt it or you know whatever and i'm like okay if they live like 20 plus years you know, what would make sense right now, what makes sense to me is like maximum three, but it should probably just be one or two, you know, for me to do it the way I want. And so I think uh, talking to other um, experts, breeders, other owners, I think that's really helpful because everybody has a different perspective and I love everybody's perspective. Some people want to have 300, good for you. Some people only want to have five, great for you too. But for me, I haven't decided, I think two seems very possible. So that's probably <laughs> what I'll you know, stick with for a little while. I haven't bought a second one. I'm still, working <laughs> the corn snake. Yeah.
0: no, no, it, it's great to see the, um, the thoughtfulness there. And, uh, I think, I think a lot of times people go from one to 10 to 20. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, if you're like us, if you live alone, um, if you have, who knows what can happen, you have COVID for two weeks and you don't have right. the energy to take care of the animals. You need someone who, uh, can come over and take care of them or who knows what happens. You go on vacation, all different types of things. It, it ends yeah. up affecting your life. Trust me. Like my, uh, my animals run my life a lot of the times at this point.
1: And you know, if you go on vacation, it's not as simple as just having somebody feed your dog. Like some people are so afraid of these animals. It has to be a certain relative or friend who can literally come over and maybe give it a feeding or whatever, or, or to just put water in there. Some people are too afraid to just, change out the water if you're on vacation so i thought a lot about it um and you know then there's the other the unknown that's the other part of the hobby and just life that things can go wrong or things can change and so who knows maybe i'll maybe i'll get married next year to some man of my dreams and then be have the budget for 10 animals who knows you know we don't know oh is he rich I don't know. I haven't met him yet. <laughs> if you're listening, I got to meet you.
0: <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about, um, like growing up business, all of that stuff. So yeah. you were, you were born in Mexico city. When did you come over to the States?
1: Uh, just when I was about to, uh, enter puberty. So, uh, age 12. And, uh, we already had some family here, like my grandparents lived here, but all the, the family is Mexican. And, um, The thing I'm I'm just always very lucky and proud of is that uh, growing up, you know, we grew up with both languages. Even in Mexico, we spoke English at home, so that we would, you know, get both. And my parents sent us to schools where they taught us in English in Mexico. So the the adaptation here wasn't so much with language, but it was a lot of culture shock both ways, right? Because uh, I just wasn't used to. Uh, the discrimination feeling so different than anyone else and then on top of it at that age what was happening is I was realizing that I was different in this other way that's more universal which is uh, you know I was gay and so um, those years were really interesting but I don't have I don't have horror stories uh, about it. I mean I think it's every young person goes through a really hard time between ages of like 13 and 22 and so, um, I, as an adult, I've tried to give some of that back with what I do, because I do see young people, whether they're LGBTQ or people of color, or just people who feel different, that they struggle with this even more than what I did. And so I I just, everything that I do, my my books, uh, when I stream on Twitch, um, everything in my life is hopefully giving them the sense that, oh, I can do that too, because I was just lucky. I think I had great parents. Who provided like a really safe environment to become myself, right? So uh, that was that was those years, and um, I went to college here in uh, in Chicago and Evanston. So I went to Northwestern University for journalism, and then after that, I've lived to several places. I lived for in Chicago for many years. I live here now, but I lived in uh, New York, Japan, Ireland. And that's another thing I feel very lucky that I've been able to see the world and then learn from those experiences and bring them back here.
0: What was it like living in Japan? How did that come about?
1: Uh, Japan. So I had a really good job. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but Encyclopedia Britannica mm-hmm. had this great idea in the late 90s that they were going to um, be like the next com. So they they set up their the whole encyclopedia on, on the web. This was before Google arrived and they were like we will be the search engine that everybody in the world will use not knowing that google was you know making it way better <laughs> so um, <laughs> they hired a lot of talented people and just like the bubble burst back in those days uh, there were layoffs at the end of the of that time there and so uh, it was run very poorly and just like you hear the horror stories of, oh we found out about the layoffs like the morning of literally they laid off everybody and they had like secret meetings and then they laid you off and at that time, uh, I had already, I, I don't know what was getting into me, but I, I, I got this idea that I wanted to go on the JET program, which is sponsored by the Japanese government. And you can go and get sponsored to teach in the public schools, uh, English. And that was I, I don't know if it was that I was worried about this job and the, the internet and the dot-com bubble. But anyway, as soon as I got laid off, I also got the acceptance letter to go on JET. So off I went, and I went in uh, 2001, and it was life-changing, it's a hard place to live. I know people have this romantic idea of like, you go there and as a foreigner, you get treated like a king, you do. But now that especially so many more people are uh, attuned to um, notions of like discrimination and racism, like you go through it a lot in Japan, it just feels different because of how the culture works. So they'll, they'll always treat you like a king, you know, and, and everybody in Japan, I have the time of my life. I, I really love that place. I'll gladly go back. But also um, it's constantly, it, it, the culture constantly reminds you that you will never be part of Japan. You can't get citizenship. You'll never speak the language the way that everybody speaks it. Those things, um, you know, n- neither place is worse or better but those things were hard because I was like, you know what, I'm dealing with a lot in the, in the United States with these very same topics of like immigrants and racism and who speaks what. And here in Japan, it's it was still just as intense, but maybe more isolating, Joe, because I was just there with some of the other, um, you know, foreign teachers who were there on the program. And so there weren't a lot of resources to be like, hey, you know, what? I feel a little left out of certain things sometimes like You just couldn't do it. You just have to like absorb it and keep it to yourself. But through and through, if I could do it again, I would stay even longer. Uh, you just can't get citizenship. <laughs> they just will not let you do that. Or, or even like long-term visas, you know, they're really difficult to get. Um, but it taught me a lot. And I think it, it taught me also to break away from expectations of my career. Because when I did that, I had been working as an editor for so long. Um, I thought, oh, am I going to ruin my career by becoming an English teacher in Japan and that didn't happen. And in fact, it was one of the best things I ever did.
0: So is that as far as like career changes and stuff like that? I mean, I've worked so many different jobs. And yeah. I, uh, I mean, it seems as though uh, you can always kind of go back. You, you took your chance, but then how did you end up coming back? Did you come back to the States from there?
1: Came back to the States and there, I guess there, I did have, you know, my, my career and my vocation to fall back on because when I came back, I got a phone call from a former editor from Chicago Tribune, which is where I used to work right out of school. And they were like, oh, we're starting up a new project here. Uh, we have a, they had just purchased a Spanish language newspaper, like a chain, and they were converting their content into the CMS that Chicago Tribune had. So they said, "We need a, we need like an executive producer who can help us just you know, bring it to life and you work here before. And suddenly I was in and I, I needed to work. Uh, at, at the moment when I came back, I almost thought I should just go to another country and be an English teacher. But uh, my family's here and the stability was good. So I ended up going back into journalism and I stayed there until uh, well, my 2016, not not at that job, but in mm-hmm. journalism through then. And so I, I don't know what to tell you. It just, words keep <laughs> pulling me back in.
0: And it seems like some of the things that you were kind of ostracized for, whether it be, you know, being from Mexico, Mm -hmm. being bilingual helps you get into that position and get that job that you ended up getting.
1: Yeah, that's the irony. I think that, um, you know, just like anybody else who's part of a minority or a marginalized group, you know, I, I have my own. Politics. I have my own rage because I have like rage about what happens in in this country. But at the same time, um, as much as as much as we feel any rage, the world is changing. Like the way this country works is more diverse. There are more voices, and in some ways, there have been more opportunities. Like that wasn't possible even a decade before when I got that invite to to be part of that project. Um, And even what I do today, I have a space in being a book author, promoting my my books, my clothing line, that there just weren't conversations around that. And you couldn't get to those customers in that particular way. So I try to always stay focused on it because we see time passing is like, I mean, some of us, some of us see it as like, oh, it's just things are getting worse and worse. But in fact, a few things have improved. Uh, It's just that, you know. There's still, there's there's always going to be one more hurdle for the culture to get over. And so I'm always wanting for the best stuff to happen to everybody and for just equality to exist for all. But uh, that helped me a lot. That helped me a lot. And it continues to help me today because I never expected to market my products to LGBTQ people. This is going to shock some people because they'll look at my store, they'll look at my TikToks and they'll be like, wow, you're so good at speaking to you know LGBTQ people. And I never actually really wanted to do that when I started my own business. I actually just wanted to make stuff that the whole world would appreciate. But you, you know, we've talked a little bit about marketing, you and I, once you go into marketing, you have to define that audience. And that was my best audience.
0: Yeah. And can we go back a little bit? Because I think, um, as for me, like, I have a nine to five job, I have a regular job that I actually enjoy. Um, But a lot of people, the whole story is like, I work this 9 to 5 corporate job that's soul crushing and I want to break out of it. I want to break free. Did you feel like that?
1: Uh yes. Uh so I mean, you're really uncovering like you're unpacking all my history. This is a uh, Is
0: this, this too revealing? <laughs> no,
1: this is good cuz you're actually you're you're kind of like finding all the the, the gaps in there cuz sometimes people, you know, you you see somebody on a podcast or on YouTube and you go wow, it's, it's always been smooth and an easy journey to the top or to wherever they are. But no, um, when I was in my mid thirties, uh, this is when you know I had been pulled back into journalism. I switched to healthcare journalism for a little while. Um, so I went from Sh- Chicago Tribune to healthcare. I worked for two big uh, uh, healthcare organizations here. One's a hospital, one's a, uh, a big nonprofit, very famous. And I swear to you, those were some of the most miserable years of my life. And I made a great paycheck. I mean, my paychecks were awesome. You know, I had like money to just go on vacation. And, you know, I had a condo, you know, I bought a condo. But it just goes to show that money actually isn't always the answer. I was miserable. And eventually it started showing through in my performance in one of those jobs. And I think most people are too embarrassed to actually talk about that. But uh, for the first time around the age 33, 34, I got one bad performance review, like in my job. And and I'm the kind of person who, you know, always got straight A's, whatever. And, you know, when that first happens to you, you go, oh no, it must be my manager's fault. You know, he or she is after me, or uh, this other person, you know, didn't do the job right. You start blaming people. We all go through it, I did it. But as time went on and in retrospect, uh, the problem was me. The problem was me because that place was not for me. Like what they did was good stuff. Uh, the content was fine, but my heart was not in the team or with what they did, and so um, that was a really rough time. Because uh, if you're a person that is team focused and you you know people are meeting me, I'm very sociable. I want to help people out, make teams you know be harmonious. Nothing was working, and what I needed to do was to walk away and, and change. So that was once, and then I went through it again. It actually happened again uh, just about five years ago in New York, I was an editor in New York. So I you know I kept on moving up the, the ladder to bigger and better jobs. I was an executive editor in, um, in New York for uh, Wirecutter, which is part of the New York Times now. And uh, I went through a period that looked very different. By then I was managing a lot of people, uh, a lot of responsibility. We were about to be acquired by the New York Times and uh i ran myself into the ground cuz i had learned some of the lessons from before and i did love the organization i love the people but something else internally needed to change uh for me to move ahead and that change actually needed to be for me to walk away and kick off my own business and so um i think the, the you know the uh, what do you what do you call that the um, the the moral of the story is that I think that if we ever expect to be good at anything, you know, whether it's career or vocation, you do have to be willing to go through a lot of pain and struggle because these moments of doubt when you ask yourself am I the right person for this job? Am I good enough for this? Uh it, um, you know, is my team, you know, worth giving them all my energy? We go through this all the time and it it's there's no there's no easy answers. The thing is, you just have to pay attention to yourself. Usually, your intuition is telling you very early what to do. Like the the one job, like the healthcare jobs, very early on, my intuition was like, "You don't like working here," mm-hmm. and I did not pay attention to it for almost five years. I mean, that's the thing. Like, that's how deluded we are. But there were like there was a sentence in my head that I was always like, "You don't want like working here." And yet I did. So
0: I don't know. Dude, that's no, it's so, because obviously like, I think I just went through my first period of that. I've had plenty of jobs where I knew that I hated and stuff that Mm -hmm. I was doing that I hated. Um, but I had like three to four years where I was just lying to myself, right? You know, like, and just, and also looking externally and saying, you know, this is not happening for me. That's happening, you know, to me. And, uh, it's always kind of you and your attitude, or maybe it's you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or It is.
1: It is because when it's on, you don't have to think twice about that stuff. Even when there's difficult people or obstacles, you just keep jumping over them. But when those things happen and when we are less mature, you always think, oh, it's the outside world. It's 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 pressing in on me. It's another person. It's their bad intentions. And there are people with bad intentions, but honestly, they're often not thinking about you. (laughs) That's the thing, that's what I discovered. They're not thinking about me at all. Uh, And I was the one that just needed to uh, make the changes. And that stuff is so painful. I just think most people aren't willing to talk about it because it happens whether you stay at a job or you leave. Like, you know, it just, but I didn't want to be like that, Um, which is why I'm sitting here now doing something else.
0: Yeah, and I mean, um,
1: you know, sometimes people, you know, you, you manage people, Uh, sometimes people quit they go oh it's my time to move on or this this and um, I've learned if they ever say you know oh I'm having a problem or I'm burnt out or maybe it's not right for me I never I never try to like pull them back in or force them to do things they don't want they don't want to do it and it's not right for them I would rather that they you know fly and go somewhere where they really feel at home so
0: yeah See, I've only known you for a short period of time. And in that period of time, the thing that I take away from who you are is that you are unapologetically yourself. Um, So it's hard for me to think that you were someone who is crammed in a box, you know, in an office somewhere in a job that you hated. Um, How the hell do you get the guts to do that kind of a thing? And just like you're flexing half naked on Instagram, man. Like I couldn't even, yeah. I would never have the guts to do something like that.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll tell you where, where it comes from. I mean, now we're getting deeper into some of the, the stuff that really connects what I think I do and you know, things I read. But uh, Carl Jung, one of the most famous psychologists ever, uh, almost as famous as, as Freud, uh, one of his big concepts was the shadow that once you get into adulthood, not childhood and not being a teenager, but adulthood, uh, the shadow becomes the most important thing you have to work on. And the shadow is basically the thing you don't ever wanna see in yourself. And it doesn't mean negative or bad. For some people, the shadow is like being a a, a loving person or affectionate, truly. And for some other people, it means um, maybe being more extroverted or more, more, um, delineating more boundaries, right? But um, I think for me, if you were to look at me in those years when I was in those like more formal jobs, uh, and especially when I was a boy, like teenager and just out of school, I was basically the person who always did the things that you were supposed to do. In, in, In school, you know, like somebody's always like, hey, do you have the answer to this one? Or did you do the homework? I was the kid that always did the homework. (laughs) <laughs> and we do these things when we're, we're kids, because that's how we learn to survive the world, even to survive our parents. As much as we love our parents, our relationship when we're little with them is to just stay safe and not upset them, because if we upset them, then we don't feel loved, right? So I just did everything by the book. And uh, of course, that's part of me. It's how I still do a lot of things, right? Right. But what I realized in my adulthood, once this, these crises started in the thirties is that there's parts of me that are more, um, they, they used to feel very foreign. Like who is that person? And I've let them come through now. And what's happened is especially with social media and promoting my, my, my platform for people is that there is this other, it's almost like another person who kind of came through like an extra dimension. And, um, the more I let that come through and stay mindful, you know, don't, don't, don't let it get to your head or whatever, the, the more adjusted I feel. Uh, as a book author and especially the person that I am, I never wanted or thought, oh, you know, I'll need to like show myself physically to promote my books or my products. In my mind, I was always going to be behind, behind an opaque surface, kind of like a snake in the hide, right? I'll never have to come out because. My work will just be seen by everybody. People will just read my books and they'll go, who is that person who wrote that? And things don't work like that now, especially in the last 20 years. You have to have this big internet presence. And so um, I've let that kind of come through a lot more. And even as it comes to Instagram, uh, by the time I was kicking off LED Queens, which is the line of clothing that I make, you know, I had already uh, been, I had been a runner and a triathlete for years since I was in my 20s, but I was a casual triathlete, which means, and people who listen to this podcast, if you're a triathlete or runner or marathoner, you know, most marathoners and triathletes, they just have like average looking bodies. You do the events, you know, you you do the cycling and you want to look good. But like, I kind of look like skinny fat, you know, if people know what that is. I was classically skinny fat. And um, I always wondered, I was like, well, shouldn't I look better? Cause you know, I just did a half marathon and like an Olympic uh, length triathlon, but it wouldn't happen. And uh, then I got a little bit more into weightlifting. I made a switch into powerlifting and things like that. But I think that was a discovery that also was something that I was cutting myself off from. So to go back to childhood and when you're a professional in the United States, a lot of the culture, if you, if you talk to a lot of white collar people, you know, people who were corporate and whatever, which I was for a while, The things they always are is it's always uh, um, running, they always do cycling, uh, CrossFit lately. And the other stuff that people do, which would be bodybuilding, powerlifting, I guess there's a distinction. People associate that with being kind of like a meathead or uh, being working class.
0: Certainly not intellectual, right?
1: Intellectual, right? Yeah. And uh, I don't know when that happened, when the switch flipped, but I was like, why am I following those stupid rules? I mean, I love running. I love triathlon. I'll never, I never want to do it differently. But once I went deeper down the rabbit hole of weightlifting, I was like, they're all the same thing. They're all like great for the body, different results. But um, that was something that also kind of, you know, you talk about being, becoming more of myself. If I had stayed a runner up until this age, I would actually be doing a disservice to myself. Because I think what I actually love more is creating shape, bodybuilding, all this stuff. Um, and and to, to go to the brand real quick, that's that's a decision I also understood when I kicked off making gym gear for men. I was like, I cannot be presenting myself to the world on uh, the internet as the owner of this brand without at least having a shape. I don't need to be cut or look like, you know, like I'm on stage for a bodybuilding show, but I need to look like this really, cause it is my passion, right? Mm-hmm. So um, th- those were more, more, you know, bridges I have to cross and, and they still happen every There's still, I'm doing things every day where I'm like, oh, I'm putting, out, putting myself out there too much. But if I'm doing it from the heart, it works. If it's false, then most things always fall flat.
0: Yeah, I think the big thing is being aligned, right? I think I think we've all seen snake, um, even in the snake space, you see people who have YouTube channels and then the real, the people who have been around for a little bit are like, that's not a real snake guy. <laughs> no, no, like, yeah. Right, and it's, uh, you know,
1: people, people say it's things like, oh, stay in your lane and things like that. I mean, I, I think staying in your lane for the whole your, your all your life is too limiting. You should try other things. But to speak to other things as if you're uh, an authority on them, like, I really can't. So when it comes to snake keeping, I'm a brand new snake keeper. I read a lot, but ultimately I don't have answers for that. I'm not on your show to be an expert on being a brand new uh, snake keeper. Uh, but things where like it, it falls squarely into my area of passion, those things do happen to take off Um One of the things I did with COVID also was, uh, you know, we're talking developing business ideas and business plans. Uh, I knew my business plan had to be tweaked because of people not going to gyms, right? And I'm still working on that, but I started early, like even in February, I was like, oh, we have to move quick. And at the time I thought, oh, you know what I'll do is I'll create a lot of educational content that is free for the customers when they purchase the product. So in other words, if you buy a pair of gym tights from me, you will get a sequence of ten emails with like fitness tips and nutrition stuff just for free, kind of like, like a course, just through you know just from being a customer. I started working on that, and I even you know had like a, an editorial partner who was helping me with that, a a, a personal trainer, but. I don't know like if, the, if it wasn't meant to be or if my heart wasn't in it or maybe it was just the conditions, it just didn't like gel. It just wasn't going where I needed it to. And then at the same time, I was experimenting with TikTok, marketing my products on TikTok. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm marketing, you know, my, and people, if you visit ledqueens.com, the thing, our famous, like our flagship product is men's gym tights in all these different colors. So I was making TikToks, just thinking, I'm just going to promote them the way I do on Instagram. You know, so talk about it, like, you know, flex a little bit, whatever. And, uh, you know, this was still part of like trying to evolve the business in the COVID life. But I did one one TikTok about a video game that I feel very passionate about, uh, which is Overwatch. And that one was the TikTok that took me out of what my customers wanted. And it was like a whole new audience. It was like, LGBTQ kids who love Overwatch. Suddenly that TikTok, that one single one, it's not a lot, but it has like, I think like 80,000 views still just for like 15 seconds. And it took me into this other place where now I I haven't really figured out how it fits into the business plan, but LED Queens isn't just about products, it's about services. And for me lately, those services are for um, underrepresented communities which is LGBTQ gamers. Like the the whole industry and the communities, they're very toxic no matter what. Even if you're straight, they're toxic. And um, I think I have found a place in there, but I couldn't be in that space talking to these young people about these video games if I didn't love video games. That's the whole point. If I was faking it and being like, well, I guess I'll, I guess I'll start marketing to the kids because they <laughs> seem to like video games. I should be shot out of the water. I should just be <laughs> gone. But this one falls squarely in there. And that's also the challenge because I didn't get an MBA uh, and I'm not like, you know, I didn't start selling my own stuff at a young age. My challenge as a business owner is how do I take those passions and b- make them part of a true business plan that scales? Uh, I still don't have the answers for that either. <laughs> so- and I
0: think that, I think that, that that is a great lesson though, as far as you're putting stuff out there and when something hits you don't just say like, oh, that's not really me. You're trying to figure out a way to make it work. Plus, you are kind of trying to find a way for it to be you, but yes. at the same time, give the people what they, what they want. And I think that that's really hard because a lot of times when we're passionate about something, we're a little bit too much into the maybe the corners of it and Maybe I really like Amazon tree boas, and I'm like, why doesn't everyone love these things? And you're just trying so hard to make everyone love it, and like, no, man, you kind of have to think about what the people want at the same time. You can't make people want something.
1: Uh, books are the same way. I mean, I don't, I don't write books just based on like what a commenter leaves on Amazon, but at the same time, there have been some uh, things that you can tell that's what the audience wants. Uh, in my case, they want. You know, it's sort of like Narnia or like uh, Middle Earth. You go through a portal and you go into Miklan, which is the, the underworld of the Aztecs, but it's full of magical creatures. And again, you know, they're gigantic, whatever. And the way I write, I didn't necessarily want to write sequels that were always going back in there. But I realized very quickly, you know, you just even just from talking to the readers, it's like that's what they want. They want more monsters, more of that descent in there. So that, that's one great example. Another great example is rainbows. Uh, this, this might also shock other people who go, oh my God, don't all LGBTQ people love rainbows? I don't love the rainbow. I, I mean, I love rainbows. I love rainbow as in terms of like the prisms, you know, from science. <laughs> okay. But designing with rainbows is really difficult to, to get it right. And uh, like year three into having my business, uh, I was getting so many requests from people saying, when are you gonna make pride designs? because what they wanted was to wear my stuff in June or whenever Pride is in their city with rainbows. But it was like getting punched in the face. I was like, this is not what the designer wants to do. This designer does not like rainbows. And yet I have to figure out a way to design with them to satisfy myself and them. And I went in that direction and they've been very successful. Those are still really uh, successful designs. And even now with streaming, uh, there's other games I play that I've streamed but the number one and number two games are that give me the most subscriptions and views are these two games, especially Overwatch, which is a very stale game. It's been out for five years. The sequel isn't coming out yet. And yet it's what's made me uh, relevant in this community. So I try to really follow my nose with that. And that is, I guess, the business side of it, like go to what the audience wants. Uh, But in my case, I get so wrapped up in it. Sometimes I have to pull myself back and go, You got to think even more like a business person. And that's hard. I just, I think I'm more wired like an artist with a good chunk of business person there.
0: Yeah, an artist is great until you have to pay rent and then all of a sudden you're a business person, you know, like.
1: If you're an artist that does it for a living, you have to think like it's a job. And so uh, these young kids who are part of my community, they talk to me because they go, I want to be a big streamer. And I'm not a big streamer. I only have like 500 Uh, followers whatever but they see the big people and they go I want to do that I want to do that and I tell them I'm like as fun as it may look to you that they're sitting there playing video games you know and getting lots of money it is a job you have to shower for the job you have to show up on time you can never miss a day you know it's it is work and uh if anybody wants to be a novelist same thing I write even when I don't feel like it or even if I don't feel great I still have to sit my butt down and get it done.
0: So have you have you read Stephen Pressfield? Um, I believe it's called The War of Art, and then he calls that the Resistance, in which uh, mm-hmm. he talks about writing in particular. He's a writer, and basically he needs to set a time. He needs to go to work. He goes to work and he forces himself to write. Yeah, it seems all nice and great to be a writer and do what you love, but some days you got to do it when you don't want to do it. That's how it is.
1: That's how it is in this house. (laughs) And it's like, I have to talk to myself and be like, I don't care what you want. Like, you're going to sit down and do it. And for me, it's mornings. That's when emails haven't, aren't too uh, stressful. Uh, I'm not getting too many uh, customer service issues. Like the morning time is my time to get it out of the way. One or two hours. I don't write all day. I write like maximum two hours.
0: And I guess to, to go back, something that I totally skipped over, like how did you settle on singlets? Like, how is that even a thing? <laughs> it's something that, you know, how do you even think about that? Yeah.
1: Um, well, singlets came before the tights. I guess we're telling the story of LED queens. But um, let me, this always, I mean, I think almost every question you've, you've asked me, they still it still goes back to the books. Uh, I have two book series. So one is called The Coil, and that's the one that has all these Aztec monsters in it. Uh, the third book is about to come out. And that one is like, if you took a Blade Runner and Pan's Labyrinth, like that's kind of, and Godzilla, that you're getting the, that, right? And then I have a second book series that I wrote under a pen name. And that one is, uh, it also has Aztec mythology, but the, the core of the books is that it's a gay superhero. And my gay superhero, um, who does get his powers from the Aztecs um, or the Aztec gods, He uh, I did something that uh, I guess was crossing a boundary back then But I looked at uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and how terribly written the book is, and yet it's the most popular book around the world. And a friend of mine, she's an editor, we were working in New York, uh, we just said, oh, let's write a short story or like a novella each and prove how we can write something better than that garbage Fifty Shades of Grey, right? So we did it and uh, we set a date. And on the date, I don't know if she fell through on her deadline or what, but she was like, oh, I lost my file, you know, whatever. And uh, I was like, so you don't have anything to show? She's like, no, I didn't. Okay. So that was that. But on that day, I showed up and she's like, what do you have? I had uh, like six or seven short stories about the same character. So he had acquired superpowers, but he also, I took his sexuality seriously. I was like, what would the desires of a person really be if they had these powers? And now we have TV shows like The Boys, you know, where they explore that. Is that. That's what it's called, right?
0: I'm not familiar with it to be honest
1: yeah. so it's basically taking a look at the more human aspect of superheroes um so with my book series which came out in 2013 uh i was like okay he's got these powers but he's got a good job he's a nurse he already he understands intellectually that he can really help people so he tells himself he's like why would i want to like dress up in tights if uh if i already help people so for him what he took those powers to do for him was to actually like not take advantage of people sexually, but to live out his fantasies, which are very like Fifty Shades of Grey kind of fantasies. (laughs) And the series is mostly about that. So he's constantly fighting the urge or the obligation to really be a superhero because instead he goes down into this underworld of like uh, leather people and kink and BDSM, which uh, is also part of some of the communities of LGBTQ people. So to to explain the singlet, When I published that book series, um, I applied for um, like an opening. There's a big uh, leather conference here in Chicago. It's been happening for more than three decades, really famous, four decades, I think. Um, And if anybody doesn't know what a leather man is, like in gay culture, it's somebody that looks like the leather dude from the uh, Village People, like all leather cop hat, you know, leather pants. But there's there's these very vibrant communities that are not scary. They're just people who love that stuff and you know also love the BDSM aspect. And um, there's a really famous uh, museum here in Chicago that's devoted just to the culture, like the LGBT culture of this. They put out an email, uh, I remember, and they were like, we we're we're taking on uh, four authors this year, and if you get accepted, you know, put in your application, you can have your own author table at the conference, and you can sell your books. And I, I was like, yes, but I sent the application in expecting to get rejected. I literally did, I was like, I just self published this. No one knows my name, I'm using a pen name so people don't even know who the hell that is. But I sent it in and sure enough, I got the uh, the acceptance a few weeks later and I was like, oh my God, this is the best. So knowing, knowing my crowd, LGBTQ crowd, mostly gay and queer men though, mostly men, I was like, I cannot show up in good conscience to this uh, conference and be in a shirt and tie. Right. And sign books. First of all, I won't sell any books, but number two, that's not me. Going back to what you're talking about, that's not me. I don't wanna dress like that. And since the books are about superheroes and the costumes and cosplay, I was like, I'm gonna go into full cosplay. So I had a designer make a suit that looked like the book cover, but like a superhero suit. And then I was like, I need good merch that isn't typical merch. Cause my crowd wants things that looks like superhero, but like, it's also part of that, that community.
0: And were you bodybuilding at this point? Did you have aesthetics like as far as- uh... No, no,
1: no, no, I actually have the You can see everybody, you can go see on Instagram. Cause you can see when I'm promoting those books in there. Uh, I didn't look terrible, but I just looked kind of schlubby. And uh, I, I took a chance. I was like, I'm yeah. gonna do it. And so uh, I, I wasn't presenting myself with that shape. But um, a lot of my customers and people in that conference, you know, there's huge vendors like these gigantic, uh, you know, displays, where people are selling precisely those things, like singlets, uh, a lot of like jock straps and things that you know gay men want for these parties and events. And so I thought, well, could I make something spandexy because that's superheroes, right? And uh, I had been on a podcast as a guest, uh, the Iron Radio podcast which is run by really three really well-known powerlifting, bodybuilding like people in the field. And I made friends with one of them, Um, well, well, all of them, but one of them, uh, Phil, he makes a lot of products for a lot of the powerlifting companies in the US. And we weren't like super friends or texting all the time. I just, he had met me and he was really nice. And I took a chance and I sent him an email. I said, Phil, look, I, I just wrote my book. I'm about to go promote it. I promise you I'm not gonna put dicks on the on the graphics, but if I make a singlet that has a custom image that's for my books, uh, would you make it? And he was like, I'll make anything. You know, <laughs> like we'll work it out. And so he did. And what he turned out for me were powerlifting singlets, which also were different than what was being sold to customers from competitors, like, cause there are companies that just do these kinds of things for gay men. Uh, because it was more heavyweight and it actually it it created a better shape for men that are bigger, both muscular or like with a little it's bit like more body. Spanx, strength.
0: But in yeah. A, yeah.
1: And so I, I started selling them there and then uh, I set up a square squarespace shop and they love them, but I made a limited quantity because as a business owner, I, I try not to bite off more than I can chew, and that's inventory. And so I didn't have a lot of extra money and I didn't know how well they would sell. So I made them limited run. And then people always asked. they were like, what, whatever happened to your singlets? Aren't you ever gonna sell them again? Fast forward to um, 2016 and 17, when I was kicking off uh, what became LED Queens, uh, a Shopify store, I brought them back. I actually had two, two in stock. I listed them, they were gone. Uh, and then they, the customers just wanted more. But by that point, I actually had much more of an aesthetic for the brand, which is like 80s, neon, blue and pink, kind of like my room here. And so the ones I make now look really different. They don't have book covers or anything like that on them. They're they're very like, imagine like the movie uh, Drive, but has a rusting singlet, like all that like 80s kind of like vibe or whatever. Um, and then the, the tights soon followed from that because that's another product I would have sold for people at the conference. But even by then I was like experimenting with more um, sublimation, that's the process we use. And uh, now I've uh, launched 85 pairs of tights. So we make more tights than singlets now, and that's what we sell the most of.
0: Wow, so I'm guessing you're in more of a legitimate manufacturing production type of uh, thing now, besides going to your buddy Phil and asking him to use yes. them for you?
1: Yes, I mean, we're still real small. We work. We still work with Phil. So uh, Phil has made, uh, he makes all the singlets now, and they're still like that top quality. But Phil has also made um, stringer tanks, which bodybuilders love. Uh, what are the uh, Silkies shorts, which army people wear? Uh, and we, we have a huge challenge because w- my customers want like hot pink and they're really hard to make for men. So, you know, that, we're going down that rabbit hole. And then with the tights, um, yeah, I have one major um, manufacturer that I work with and I'm pretty happy with them because they can help me reach the whole world. So it does scale. But ultimately, uh, I'm at, it's sort of like being with Amazon or some of these other services, if they change the, the platform or if they change the way they manufacture uh, one of the products that we use from them, then I'm screwed. Because if, it, if it's not the exact same as what the customers are used to or they change a feature that suddenly doesn't work, my whole catalog is affected. And so I'm looking for ways to kind of get to, you know, more, I would love to do more print on demand, but something where um, I'm more in control of the process, but I'm not there yet. You know, I think this is a good moment to also talk about and level, you know, about like small businesses. It's still just me. I have a few contractors uh, who are great, but it's difficult to get to the next level because as people will probably get, it's a niche business. We service a very niche chunk of the my community and LGBTQ communities are already small enough. So I'm trying to figure out like, we've got COVID, we've got, you know, shipping delays still. And I'm like, how do we get to the next place? Because I would like to make something that's even more tailored to what I want. And then there's products that the customers want that we've been promising them for years and we just, we cannot get to them. Like they want swimwear right now and underwear. Uh, If I could, I would, but I'm not a huge believer in taking t- giant investments or owing people a lot of money. So I'm like, it might, it might take us longer than what we expected to get to those. So right now it's the tights and the singlets that are really just, you know, the, the engine, but, uh, you know, if I could make it go further, uh, yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying, but it's hard. It's not, it's not as easy as people think where you go, oh, just, just shoot for the next thing and start selling it. Like, it's not like
0: that. I think so. I'm probably at a very similar space in which I'm, um, does this scale at all? Can yeah. I make this work? Would I like to be in this if it's scaled? There's
1: that's the question. Would you yeah. like to be in it if it scales? I mean, you you can take a look. You don't have, nobody needs to be a fashion guru to know that if my business scaled, we would be forced. We would have to start making more like formal black attire because that's usually what's sold to men black and gray.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And to, to date, we've never really made a lot of that because we refuse to, <laughs> but I'm like, oh, and I got some advice from somebody who does, you know, have a business. They go, oh, do you ever want to make stuff that looks a little more mainstream? And I'm like, I don't know. We could, we would make a lot of money, but I don't know if that, my heart would be in it.
0: Yeah, can you somehow, uh, this goes back to things that we've said a million times in this episode already, but how do you be yourself, but right. also get that kind of mainstream appeal? I don't know if it's, is it possible? I don't know, it depends. Some people do can it.
1: You I have would be really clever. I mean, I look to the big people who did stuff like this, like David Bowie. Like he made decisions along his career where he was like, this will scale and it will fit my vision. So I, I look more to him and less to business people, honestly, like uh, David Dude, Bowie,
0: he, if you look into more in his career, like when you thought he was famous and rich, he was neither. He may have been living a good lifestyle, but he wasn't wealthy for quite a long time.
1: At all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it was yeah. maybe like, yeah. Like because in White we, Duke is where maybe he started making money or, you know, he didn't.
1: And licensing, by the time he started licensing so much of his music to uh, not just movies, but video games and things like that, you know, that's when things become lucrative. Um, and, and, you know, without like breaking open all my books here, like the financial books, it, it, it that's my concern sometimes when people look at social media and they look at my images, especially because I've also physically recrafted myself. So what they see is like a fantasy projected onto the screen, and they go, "Well, he 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 looks great. Great, he's got uh, you know his LGBTQ small business. He's written books, but the reality is, in many aspects, I'm so niche that most people don't read my books. Uh, the customers we have are super loyal and obsessed with the product, but they're a unique kind of customer, and." Uh, you know, maybe my time will come later. Maybe like David Bowie, I'll figure out some way to scale what I do. But right now, you know, just to level, I haven't really figured out how to scale. But on the surface to other people, they go, oh no, this person's scaling real high. And I'm like, no, you gotta you gotta sit in here, like come, come spend a day with me. And uh, I'll gladly show you, you know, sort of like the, the frustrations that you can have because uh, you wanna have more money in the bank. You wanna be able to have stability. And I have negotiated that away for myself. You know, I actually I don't even own property anymore because I used part of selling a, a condo that I had to kick off my own business. And it's something uh, I don't know if I would recommend it to people. You know, it's like the typical startup story where they go, "Oh, they put their you know mortgage on the line for uh, starting the business." You can literally go bankrupt with it. i and mean, sometimes I'm that close. You know, so it it is living the dream, but there's no glamour on the other side, like behind the the iPhone screen, there's no glamor here.
0: It's just- Yeah, at least, uh, at least Bowie spent all his money on cocaine and limos. So.
1: Yeah, and I'm not doing that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, especially now, I'm not spending my money on anything. It's like video games and food, that's about it. Uh, and I'm not even dating, so I can't even spend it on, on men I'm gonna take on a date.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, I guess you hear that all the time, like you said, the, the startup story. But at the same time, like, wouldn't it be nice to have a normal life in which um, a lot of times in business, you start at zero and then you have to uh, every month, every week, you know, depending on how your business is set up, you're like, I have zero dollars, zero sales right now. How am I going to make this work? How am I going to market myself? How am I going to make business? Essentially, Uh,
1: there's that. And there's this really key piece, which you're keen on because you have a great um, like outward looking platform, you know, through the internet. But business owners forget that if you're good at marketing yourself and marketing your product, and I think I've had some success with that, they're not taking into account in their accounting for the value of that time they spend. So for example, if you're a business owner and you make cakes and your TikTok account is blowing up, you know, with thousands of views, but you're spending 40 hours a week making those TikToks and not actually making your cakes, Th- that's a deep, deep problem because you didn't take into account how much your time is worth. And so I I finally, like that clicked for me about like two years ago.
0: And I'm, I am I haven't, like, haven't
1: found the sweet spot. I have not found the sweet spot.
0: I overworked. For, for all the people in the comments asking why I haven't made a YouTube video in two years, um, listen to that back again. It's because... why I retired
1: YouTube channel myself.
0: It takes so long to make a YouTube video that I was not focusing on anything that actually made money or built my business. I was just making videos and I don't make money on videos, right? So it's, at some point you have to kinda, sometimes you need to kill your children. You have to. I,
1: I basically killed uh, almost three YouTube channels last year when I redid my business plan. And now what I've uh, got it down to is because um, this is part of my marketing time, my budget, how much I'm worth, my time is worth. Uh, I allow myself to stream like actually gaming uh, no more than like five hours a week. And no more than six hours total producing TikToks because those are really popular for us. Instagram's a little easier because we have more of a system now. So I don't spend all day on Instagram. And it
0: seems like different. you do a great job of highlighting your customers in your Instagram in particular. Well, well
1: that's what really started changing it. Uh, mm-hmm. I was also, you know, I hope nobody ever gets the impression that like gay men are obsessed with their image. Many of us are, right? But uh, for me, especially once I started putting myself out there on Instagram, uh, over the years, I actually don't like putting my image out there. Uh, it's a lot of work. It's you—you uh, you feel burned out sometimes because you feel like people like uh,
0: feel entitled to your image, which is they very strange don't thing. treat you like a human being, they even like though you're not famous, you're not anything. They do not treat you like a human. They don't treat you like a human.
1: Um, and so, what really changed it for me, because also we were trying to figure out great ways to market our product and stay on a budget and also avoid uh, influencer marketing. We don't do any influencer marketing. We tried it years ago, but I didn't like it because it was never authentic. And the people who wanted our product to promote it, they just want to promote themselves. They didn't want our product really mm-hmm. um, in general. And so what we do now is I actually spend a lot of time, you know, this sort of that researcher like library guy. I go in and look at what all our customers are doing when they're posting or when they tag us and I have a conversation with each one. So every time that you see that image uh, of a customer featured, um, I've actually reached out to them and said, hey, with your permission, could we post this because you look great? And can you also tell me about some of your fitness goals so we can include that in the caption? I gather all that info, it's very journalistic. Then I we, we recrop the photo and like, you know, do any color correction. And then we have these gorgeous photos of like the product being used in real life by real people no influencers. And that's the future of LED Queens because it is community-based. That's where our strength from being a niche product for a niche community really comes through because I know most of these people by name. And even if we don't have never met in the real world, we probably have a few people as connectors between. So that's been awesome because I I don't know how y'all, but like my customers look great. Like I'm not... I'm not doing any of that magic, but like they show up with these photos, and they're not just bodybuilders. We have people who are bigger or you know,
0: do you uh, have like legit power, power lifters?
1: lifters? But we do have power lifters and bodybuilders, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that changed a lot, but it was also to help me to cut down on the time I was spending on Instagram because I know how to operate cameras. I know how to edit in light lightroom, and I was spending too much time editing images of myself. So that was just a, like a come to Jesus moment where it was like, I was like, you don't even like doing this, like being on camera as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, it is so much work. The customers may not actually want to see your image all the time. What what they may actually want to see is to see other people like what we do now. So we're in kind of in a good place there, but TikTok is still like more, uh, it's harder to handle because TikTok for now, it has to be me. The, the best TikToks are the ones where you're in it, so uh, you know, I'm working through it, but I've, I've put hard limits on it because otherwise I would be uh, passed out in the other room <laughs> from exhaustion. It's exhausting.
0: Right, right. Yeah. I mean, that Odyssey aligns so well with the last two years of my business and everything that's been going on. Um, but I have uh, Morgan Rose in the comments. She asked, has writing books ruined any of the fantasy reading uh, for you?
1: A few. Not not too often. You know, what ends up happening is uh, now with, you know, I do try new authors or current authors sometimes. uh, But now once you see how the donuts are made. You it it becomes clearer to me, and this is true of the music industry and other things, Uh, a lot of people who get published nowadays, um, and it always was this way, probably, but a lot of them, uh, they're not that great writers. Like the books aren't that good. It's just, they got a good deal. It was timing. It was good timing on their side, or they're really good at marketing themselves, or it's part of like some franchise that they're pitching to Hollywood or whatever.
0: Or Um, they pay to be on the New York times bestseller list. Or,
1: or they're like very political people and kind of, uh, I mean, that exists a lot within publishing. So writers will like, you know, do all sorts of stuff with editors and agents and whatever. Um, and so once, once I sort of understood that it's made uh, books are still pleasurable, but I don't check out as much new stuff as I used to one, cause I don't have as much time, but two, I quickly, I walk more quickly away from books now than when I was a young person, when I was a kid or younger, I would force myself, even if I didn't love the book, I would force myself to read the whole thing. And nowadays I start a book and within the first chapter, I go, Oh, if it's not like, it doesn't have to be like, you know, Hemingway or whatever, or Shakespeare, but Sometimes I can tell I'm like I'm not enjoying this or the the premise you know is not for me, so I just put it down. Um, but I still love literature of all kinds and there's some really great writers out there you know who are still doing amazing stuff. Uh, the Three Body Problem, which is um, uh, I'm not going to get the last name right, but it's a Chinese writer who wrote this trilogy is amazing. Caitlin Kiernan is still writing great you know uh, scary fiction. So there's great people out there. Just uh, there's. To answer the question, I do a little bit less, uh, uh, less reading, but I haven't lost the joy of fantasy reading.
0: Yeah, I had uh, for a little bit. I was involved with a lot of different like motivational speakers, business strategists, those folks. Um, And the amount of individuals who have number one bestsellers or have a number one book on Amazon, they can barely string together a couple sentences. It just blows your mind.
1: Right and, and, and here's the deal, I mean I, i've said this on other podcasts, including my own. Uh, as a writer once you really understand why you're writing for me, even though I have these beautiful books, you know. like Because we work very hard on the covers I, I don't make the covers we work with designers. Uh, even though I have like seven of them, I understand now that in my lifetime, maybe people will never really read my books. Like I just won't have a huge readership. Or maybe when I'm dead, they'll be more famous than I actually was. Or option C, which is usually what happens to most writers, no one ever cares. Like it just, the person did it for their own satisfaction and that's all there was. Uh, I understand all three options. And I think that's allowed me to like calm down, have lower blood pressure and not uh, live by expectations because especially with writing, it makes so little money for people unless you license it. Uh, you, you cannot expect to be Stephen King or anybody like that. It's such a rare, it really is one in like 3 million to become like Stephen King. So um, that, that's made it better. That's made it better. And yet I still keep writing. I still keep, you know, writing more books in the series. So um, that's how, also how I know Joe. I'm in the right lane of like passion and business for that.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, it's oh, funny. Yeah. Yeah. You should check out more of, uh, Stephen Pressfield stuff. Cause he talks about that. He was, a, he was a writer for 27 years. Um, before he had anything that hit anything that made him money, it's make uh, like it money. Uh, yeah. and that's writing every day. It's not that he wasn't putting in the effort
1: for most writers. Usually it's like their eighth or ninth book. Sometimes the one that like makes the blip like money or gets more notoriety. It, it, uh, you know, the J.K. Rowling's and Stephen King's of the world, it's, it's a, it's, it really is rare. And so for me, uh, you know, the goal isn't to be obscure or to not have people read my stuff. I'm marketing my books heavily. But even with uh, how books are marketed nowadays, um, marketing for writers and most books, it's dreadful. People are still making what they call book trailers. Oh, my God, that, that just makes me want to die.
0: Explain people, what that is.
1: Oh, they're they really sad. Like they'll they'll hire they'll hire a, a video editor to make something that looks like a movie trailer. You know, like coming soon, and you know they'll they'll have like if it's like a science fiction thing, like a big planet and whatever, and they'll be like the the new book by Jesse Jones, whatever. And uh, they're the kind of, they're the last thing you would ever want to watch on YouTube. If you understand young people or just how people use YouTube. That's the last freaking thing you'd ever want to see to get you to read a book. Like the way that books need to be promoted nowadays uh, lives somewhere else more in like these kinds of realms. It's word of mouth. It's pot- meeting people in real time, uh, providing things that go beyond the book that still bring people back, but uh, treating them like like little mini movies. Uh, they're not movies. The whole point of a book is that it's not a movie. And so a friend of mine, uh, I'm not going to say who, but I've known him a long time. Suddenly he popped up Last year, and he was like, "Turns out, I I, I finally you know lived out my dream. I, I made a, I wrote a, a science fiction book, so I was really happy for him." And uh, a month later, he's like, "Here's the book trailer," and I was like, "Oh no, I don't, I don't want to have to respond to my friend that he made a book trailer because they're dreadful. They just don't. I just don't. Bo-. Book trailers are made for family, basically, for your family members because it gets them pumped about the book or your friends. But for actual readers who want to spend their money." Uh, nothing beats word of mouth
0: for a book. Well, so I read
1: this word of mouth.
0: I read probably two to three books a month, which isn't crazy, and that's not a brag. Oh, okay.
1: um, you you should be talking more about that. That's a rarity nowadays. no,
0: but but i I don't even know that book trailers existed. So I've never ever made a buying decision based on that because I didn't even know that they existed. They're horrible.
1: And it's a practice that's been in the publishing industry for like at least 15 years. As, as, as early as YouTube sort of popped up uh, and people could embed a video on their website, they, they've been around and a lot of uh, budget is wasted on those kinds of things. Um, but that's that usually comes from editors or publishing houses that don't know how to talk to their authors to say, what other ways can you market your book that isn't creating a book trailer?
0: <laughs> don't do it. I mean, it's kind of like we have all the biggest uh, in the fitness industry. When we sell fitness equipment, each one of these large manufacturers, and these are you know multi-million dollar companies, they have all these YouTube videos, two minutes long, saying this is the BodyCraft T eight hundred, and it has two hundred and thirty views. So you sell you sell millions of dollars of fitness equipment, and you have two hundred views on the video because you don't know how social media works. This doesn't work here.
1: I'll give you a great example, but it also is an example of why I had to stop producing so many YouTube videos. Cause I was really into YouTube so much, like the last seven years, like I thought that would be the future for me. Like YouTube would be everything to promote. And uh, at the moment, I you know I, like budgets got reduced last year with COVID, but I also looked at some of the channels and uh, I now I know like our best, our number one video we ever made for LED Queens, wasn't exactly about our product. Um, And you could still see it now. I think it is, it's not a lot, it's like 15,000 views, but it it still brings people in and we've embedded it everywhere in our site. And it's real simple. Uh, You know, because of myself, maybe it's my own confidence in myself, but also being like an LGBTQ person who is around that in the community, talking about men's packages and men's butts and, wearing skin tight spandex, which is almost like what women have to talk about with wearing bras and underwear. I have no fear of it, but I will tell you the question I was getting in DMs from customers for months, for years, it was always like, what underwear do I wear under this? What underwear do I wear under this? And so, most people are asking legitimately and then there's a, a little tiny fraction of people who are like fetish weirdos who just want to engage you in that. So I know that, but um when I started gaining those back then, I was like, I need to give answers at scale. I cannot sit here and answer this every time. So instead of answering the DMs, I created uh, two YouTube videos, which are real simple. It's like, here's the underwear we recommend. Here's how to wear it. Here's how to actually like grab your own stuff and like put it right. If you want to present, we call it, you know, presenting, if you want to present yourself in this way. Um, and those, I mean, that's exactly the whole point of that you're making. Like understanding how social media and YouTube works. That was one instance where we finally grokked it. uh, Because the customers still like I just got a a message the other day, they were like, I have watched that video twice. And thank you so much for making that because I'm not even a fitness person. What were they? Uh, They were, um, they they do horseback riding, I think, Mm -hmm. in some of the like tight pants or whatever. And they're like, nobody like had ever talked to us about how to do this, what underwear. So you know, if I could if I could make that a hundred times or make it scale all the time or have a team, you know, the, the goal is to have a team that can help me answer questions like that. But uh, people just get social media wrong. It's not, the, the more you talk about yourself generally is like the worst things yet. <laughs> you got to talk about your community or what people care about.
0: Yeah. yeah, YouTube's the second biggest search engine. So, I mean, that seems like you benefited there.
1: Tutorials and things. I'm selecting my corn snake or knowing what to do when I first brought it home the best answers were there because I was searching, you know, I wasn't like browsing and being like, show me pretty snakes. What I wanted was uh, what happens if, typical thing, what happens if it gets substrate in its mouth when it eats? I mean, I I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I was like, it got aspen in its mouth. It's going to like get impacted and it's going to die in a day. Like that's what I thought. (laughs) But um, YouTube, YouTube got me the, the good answers on that, including, you know, your videos.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's honestly, it's no mistake, right? If you Google corn snake and then videos are going to pop up in like the second row of Google essentially. And, uh, yeah, of course I'm going to put corn snake in every single title. Cause that's how I get there. And, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you gotta, you just have to understand how people fra- formulate questions because that's what the, the trick of social media is. What question will they have? And if you can answer it, you've got it. Um, With what I do with the gaming stuff now, which I guess is a service of LED Queens, like I just think a lot about a 15 year old who is maybe in the closet too afraid to tell their parents, but they have found uh, an escape, but a community in the video games, you know, like playing on chat or whatever. And I go, what question would they ask or what would they wanna see because they feel trapped or afraid, you know, to be who they are. And that's the content we make for them on TikTok. You know, a new a new video game character came out uh, just this week for Apex Legends. And uh, the character, he looks like one of these leather people that we talked about. He's got a big fat mustache and like all this gear. And uh, I just said, you know, he, he has kind of a gay visual aesthetic or whatever. That, that one has, as of now, we just posted it today, 6,000 views because it's these kids who like, if they talk about that with other kids or with bullies, it's over, you know, they're getting called the F word and things like that. And so um, that just came from understanding, like, what does my audience want? If I, you know, everybody wish me luck, if I can just make that continue, then I'll be very successful. I don't consider myself a success yet.
0: Will you ever meld those two worlds? Maybe a singlet video game theme singlet or tights or something like that? I've tried.
1: And so far, the more, the deeper I go, the more I've had to split them. And, but maybe the answer more is more
0: niche, right? You're getting more yeah, more niche uh,
1: Well, I do cosplay, right? So for the superhero books, I've done cosplay and I used to have a channel that was just devoted to cosplay. Uh, so the answer might be in that because kids who love video game characters love to go to Comic-Con and dress up as the character. Mm-hmm. And the same questions arise. What underwear do I wear? If I'm a guy, like how do I, Put stuff here, and how do I do my hair or whatever? Um, so for LED queens, if we started making cosplay accessories and the body suits and things like that, I think that would be where the business meets the video game world. But again, you know, if anybody here is a much smarter business person or you got like uh, an MBA, uh, licensing is what limits us because what people want would be they, you know, they'd be like, "Can I get a uh, Spider-Man costume from you?" And the you know the whole look, but I don't have the money to pay the licensing to Marvel to make that stuff, and I'm not going to do it illegally. Some people do, so um, I think that's probably the, the where it meets. But I don't know how to do it, Joe. I mean, it just it's it's another area that it's also super niche. Cosplay is just as niche as like snakes and uh 80s colors for gym tights which most most guys don't wear tights to the gym that's the other thing so
0: well i think that that's a little bit different now because i know well i wear tights under shorts right mm-hmm. um but yeah i feel like a lot of people do but then again the like kind of you mentioned before the colors i have are black gray right. and white yeah, yeah.
1: And we do have straight customers, so they they, they do jump the uh, the barrier at a certain point. And I can tell what patterns they they pick based on like wearing black previously. So that's exciting to see because it that has nothing to do has everybody, please listen. That thing has nothing to do really with like homophobia or gender norms or even. I really do think that they're cyclical. There's been times in in life when men wore really outrageous stuff. And the last times we saw that truly was like late 70s, mid 80s, because the men, we were dressed like peacocks, you know, big hair, spandex, um, polyester, when polyester was raging, you know, like a lot of men in like skin tight polyester bell bottoms in all colors of the rainbow. So it just keeps repeating. So I I hope that with gym culture, we're kind of getting more to the point where almost all the men will be like, I'm going to wear hot pink today. And they do. A lot of them do.
0: Well, I mean, you would have never seen a guy wearing leggings or anything five years ago, but now it's becoming a thing.
1: Yeah, it is a thing. And for I mean, for most people who are kind of more conservative with it, the styling of shorts on top, that that's how they make it work. And they love it because it is it does feel the first time you do it. You're like, oh, this feels different. And people react to it. And you also feel like you're part of like, you know, getting dressed for the gym is often like like wearing a uniform. You're like getting in the mindset. So. Uh, we love it, but um, we we only styled ever one photo shoot with shorts over the leggings, and it didn't do well. We just stopped. Well, cause,
0: I mean, let's be honest, what your customer wants to see.
1: Right. Our customers want to see the male body. <laughs> yeah. Right,
0: right, right.
1: So it, it's super neat. It's, it's neat to compare, and, uh, you know, like I said, I go through my own troubles with homophobic parts of the culture or whatever. But it is a real joy to kind of do this because it's almost like stuff that I didn't even know I could dream when I was a kid. You know, when I was, when I was a kid, what was I into? Comic book superheroes. I loved how they looked. They also were attractive, the, the male ones. But uh, there was also the 80s. So like pro wrestling and WWF was huge. And talk about peacocks, like especially the way they dressed them then, It was it's like the stuff I make now. I mean, th- back then they probably would have been like, can we hire you? Can you design for Hulk Hogan or whatever? Uh, so I'm just doing it like my way now. And I actually got to- guys in
0: little spandex underwear. I mean, Jack- like
1: Jack guys with tans and like lots of oil on their skin yeah. and like shouting at each other. Like, Jesus, that that is like the gayest thing I've ever seen. And it's still the same. I mean, WWE now is the same, but it's so corporate. You know, it's not isn't it
0: funny other- how it's sold as like very masculine and everyone who's into it is very like. Almost conservative white. Straight. It's, it's weird.
1: It is. It is really weird. And and you know what? That that part, especially like pro wrestling and some other things, uh, or even movie stars that you know have a certain look who are gay or maybe not gay, uh, they 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 start a really uncomfortable conversation for people. So I'm talking about straight men. Sometimes if you bring up this subject about how those are sort of gay iconographies or like gay men respond to them or dress like that. They'll be like, no, no, that can't be right. Like, you know, that's not my idea of what gay men are into or what they look like. And then I go, we we ha- we come in all shapes and sizes and all flavors. Right. And and you, you look at the 70s, uh, but also leather culture, which comes from the 60s and 70s. It's a hyper masculine presentation that to straight men, it also feels like, men going to war, men doing like the thing they do. So if anything, it tells me that we all kind of, we're all human. We're actually, we're closer to each other and more similar to each other than we know. But uh, it, it is unfortunate because some straight men really get very uncomfortable if we if I bring up the topic. And I'm like, it's not a big deal. You don't have to like it. It doesn't make you gay just because I think it's gay. <laughs> <laughs> but even with these kids on TikTok, these are conversations we have to have with them. I have to have them because they'll say, how can, how can you say that that character, you know, kind of has a gay vibe to it? Like, and I'm like, well, it's because it's my personal reaction. And you may not know that a lot of gay men do like big fat mustaches and beards. Like that's, how, they look like your dad. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's not my fault. I didn't do it. But, uh, you know, I guess that's why I'm having fun with what I do. Because I try not to let the trolls get to me. And, and it is, I try to keep it educational, you know.
0: Yes. It's funny. Stephen Poole was talking about glam rock too. You know, you're talking about the eighties. Yeah.
1: I mean, glam rock was so intense. Uh, I mean, and those pants were even tighter than what I make. (laughs) (laughs) So, so it's just cycles and uh, it's also a personal preference, you know, Uh, not everybody has to dress the same way or do the same thing, but uh, I I do, you know, back to business stuff. I, I do need to figure out, what is the future of what I do? Because at the moment, you know, like a lot of small business owners, I'm like, we're getting by, we're, we're okay, but we're not okay. I mean, meaning like by next year and the year after, how do I do this so that there's more stability, more safety in what I do? Because right now I'm still, you know, walking on the tight wire or the whatever you call it. So um, I just have to do my homework and become a better business person.
0: You and I both.
1: Yeah, I mean, what are your challenges right now at the moment, Joe? I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this, but um, like now that you've heard me my stories, and I think that my my own, I always believe that the biggest problem with the business is the business owner. They're their own mm-hmm. obstacle. And my own obstacle is that sometimes I, maybe I don't pay enough attention to the business stuff, even though I say I do, uh, but like what would yours situation be like right now how do you think about?
0: so it? i am i'll be transparent and this is going to be probably not the best thing to say to the people listening or my audience right but um i realized that i may have kind of fucked up with being so transparent so out there so the company is very based on me um mm-hmm. And I am someone who is very introverted and does not like attention. And it's starting to really, really wear on me. Um, And I'm starting to realize that I should have set up some both efficiencies in my business that made my life easier as well as doing some other things that maybe would be more business minded and not based on me, myself, myself. My image, all of that stuff, something that scales a little bit better. Also, snakes, just the amount of work that you have to do, the type of work that you have to do, um, and the low margins and stuff, it doesn't make any business sense at all. Um, Some people do it, and when they do it, it's on scale, and it does not – you're producing 10,000 animals, and you're selling them wholesale to big pet stores, big box stores. Those are the people who make good livings at it. Um, the niche people, there's a few people who carve out something for themselves. Um, that is a little bit rare and it's not glamorous at all. And you, you know, no one's giving you health insurance. No one's giving you the 401k. No one's giving you any of these luxuries that even a normal middle-class person is going to have. So it's what kind of life do you want? Um, you know, at this point I'm working from when I wake up to when I go to sleep because I have the day job and I have this job in which... (laughs) my business is very inefficient because it depends on me so much. in so many different ways and the animals and all this stuff. So it's too time consuming. Um, I just, if I ever have any hope of having a social life, a family, friends, any of that shit, I've sacrificed all that shit that I need to change something drastically. And that's what, uh, that's what I'm doing now. I feel, that's what I'm starting to at least. And it's a, it's a boat that steers very slowly, but I'm trying.
1: No, I, I mean, I, it It feels great to hear you talk about this because, you know, I tell my parents, well, my, my parents are great people and um, they're huge supporters of my business, but they never get involved or give me advice. So they're the best parents because they don't, you know, get into it. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that I have talked a lot about with them and kind of laid it more bare is that uh, especially in the last, I would say, six years, almost seven years, I've um, sacrificed a lot away. And there are things that you just mentioned. I mean, just line by line, it's uh, love life, uh, social life. Um, I don't own a car. I haven't been on vacation in forever, like mm-hmm. years. I don't mean months, like Same years. Same here, yeah. I not buy anything for myself. Uh, you know, I have a very nice, um, what would you call it? like, almost Scandinavian, like, uh, decoration sense in my house. Everything's, like, clean lines, very minimalist. But it also helps me because I don't have to buy shit because I don't have money to buy fucking furniture. I have a sofa, a sofa that's uh, 15 years old, and I wish I could replace it, but there's everything. All my time and money goes into, you know, the business and moving forward. But at this point in life, I also have to figure it out. And I think the snake was part of, like, that decision-making of, like, how do I bring more balance into my life? Because mm-hmm. uh, just like I'm trying to welcome more people, be, you know, have a social life, uh, date somebody, maybe have a partner. Uh, I was like, I'm even closing myself off from like having a, an animal. It's not even quite like a pet because it's not like a dog. And so I'm trying, I'm trying because my tendency Joe is to overwork yes. and to validate myself against myself in terms of how much I work. But uh, usually what that ends up being or how it turns out is that your body takes the toll. You get sick, you have an injury. Uh, I tore my uh, calf a few years ago and I'm actually sure now it wasn't so much because I was on a treadmill or whatever. I think it was, I was so stressed out at the time because everything was go, go, go back then. So I popped my calf.
0: Yeah, so I I just had knee surgery in October. I tore my meniscus and then after that I had a blood clot. And, uh, a lot of that was my body saying, you're not doing the right thing. What the fuck are you doing? Um, so that was a big wake up call. And, and also I I finally got to the point probably two weeks ago where I actually spent money on myself. I bought some new clothes, actually some workout clothes, and, uh, I bought some different things. I bought a, uh, like a reflexive bag for boxing and some boxing gloves and decided to get into like a new hobby right and uh, and i didn't hate myself for doing it it's like most of the, what i my previous mindset was like every dime that i get i need to reinvest into my business because my business is the most important thing and needs to be prioritized but uh no you need to be prioritized well, what's like, that
1: cliche the business has yeah. to work for you not you for the business Mm-hmm. And I will, you know, I lay it all bare now, like especially because you're one of the few people that's brought it out from me. But uh, up until very recently, you know, we're talking like through now, I basically work for the business. It doesn't work for me. And I think if I'm ever going to get smarter about this whole situation, I have to reverse that because uh, that's no way to work. I don't want to die of a stroke or a heart attack from overworking myself and, not, and also not enjoy life like the company of people.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, also a big thing was, um, this probably doesn't seem like a big thing to you, but I turned 29. And I was like, what, I, I been doing this for eight years. So I lost all of my 20s, essentially, not that I lost it, I had some good times, I did some good things, met some good people, um, you know, did amazing things with snakes and a lot of uh, traveling and stuff like that. But I was like, oh, shit, I'm really butting up against adulthood and becoming 30 and like, I need to make some moves here. What am I doing? And so uh, so that was a big thing, too. I have
1: a question for you. Um, You know, you talked, you described it so well that most of um, breeder life, breeder businesses don't really scale unless you become uh, like a Walmart producer, you know, for.
0: Which then it takes all of the benefits of why I do it. Right like yeah.
1: so but in the world of like especially like food uh food service and and um those things you know before they get acquired by Budweiser or whatever there's a lot of like craft beers uh small breweries who they they make it very hipster right like like they, you know it's it's a hipster experience and you go have like you know your small plates and this craft beer that is delicious is there room in the hobby do you think to to do that for certain customers, I, I think most customers wouldn't, wouldn't want that. They'd be like, what, who are you talking to? But I think there might be a few who'd be like, oh, you know, you've spent so much effort into this animal. We're pricing it at this point because what's included with the experience of the breeder or the animal is like something nobody else could ever give you. Have you ever like talked to other breeders or, or considered that for, for the hobby? Like what? Yeah.
0: Essentially what I try to do, as well as uh, Garrett Hartle, Reach Out Reptiles. He probably does it better than anyone else. Um, I don't know. I could never I could never put bows in pretty boxes with my logo all over it and give like the white glove thing. Because that's also just not me.
1: Oh, no, that, that's not even where I was going with that. I think, uh, and maybe what I'm asking, maybe as the customer, that's stuff I would want but something more like the listings of the animal on a website, uh, which could include some video stuff or downloadable content or a PDF or whatever. But uh, it would be great to actually understand, like if I'm getting this, this animal, that's priced a little higher. Um, like, can I see the family tree of the snake? Mm-hmm. Like who it came from, what the genes are, what is expected of the genes. If the person chooses to read the animal later on. Uh, also, um, I know it sounds so dumb, but like the baby picture, like when it was hatched, like all the stuff that basically American girl dolls did this. This is their business. They give you the whole history of each American girl doll. And then, you know, parents pay like hundreds of dollars for the experience of it. And I wonder if there's some room in the hobby for that because maybe it's more like me. I don't expect to have too many of these animals, but the animal already has a history. You know, it has a history with my life, a history with my books, a history in the house. So it would be nice to know, because like the the people I bought it from, the the place here in Chicago, great place. But when I bought it, I was like, how old is the animal? And they're like, we don't know. It's like maybe three or four months, which now that I see the sizes, that's legit. You know, it was like three or four months, but they couldn't tell me too much more. And they didn't want to tell me too much more about the breeder who who, you know, bred the animal. And it's a great animal. It eats well, but... Uh, the things that I would pay extra money for would be those things. Tell me more about where it came from. Tell me more about, um, your history as the breeder, you know, that
0: was exactly my business model. Um, so I used to previous years, I had a spreadsheet of every single animal that I owned, every baby that hatched out, um, how many eggs were in the clutch when they hatched out, when they were laid, all of this stuff. Um, just when I got bigger, I was just unable to manage it all with me and the day job and stuff. And, uh, and I, I wouldn't be able to produce enough at a price that could eke out a living. Um, I could do it in like ball pythons. I probably could do it that way. Um, but that's just not where my mind or heart is. Yeah. Uh, Snakes are just too cheap, unfortunately. And,
1: and, you know, we've talked about like how that's, cyclical or at the moment they're cheap they might change later oh no but, they're
0: at the top of the market right now this is as expensive as they get okay. people are like what the hell is going on with these corn snakes they're so expensive uh, but really
1: you did say that yeah but but yeah then that's something you can't really plan for because two years out it might be king snakes or something else so, so
0: um yeah and i'm not makes, willing to play the market like a lot of the full-timers do or uh, you know even you're talking about that brewery Um, give it 10 years that may be out of style. And then all of a sudden, uh, wineries are the big thing and you're a loser.
1: (laughs) I'm sure there's a zillion breweries who are out of business now because they used to have the customer experience to come in Mm. and maybe they'd never figured out how to ship to people or they can't, because they don't
0: pasteurize. They don't, um, and a lot of these, a lot of these breweries, are trash, like their their beer isn't great, it's just a good place to hang and people my age like to go to breweries to hang for whatever rich reason. Well, um, I, I think,
1: you know, it's not just Apple that's doing this in the world of tech, but I think that part of the future because of COVID and how we're doing so much more like digital, like communication now and remote working. I think um, another thing I would be curious about in the hobby would be a service that would be kind of like a snake advisor or a reptile advisor where if I run into trouble with my animal, I can kind of consult with them and pay a fee to get like, you know, quality, quality advice or tips or references, whatever, um, precisely because of what we talked about. There's like so much information out there that's kind of bad. Uh, those those would be kind of cool because then it, it, it could scale. You don't have to be keeping 300 tubs of ball pythons or corn snakes in your house. You could just get on a video call and be like, Show me your snake. Tell me what's happening. You could be like the snake. Uh,
0: <laughs> un- Unfortunately,
1: had all the, time like this.
0: The, uh, the previous generations of breeders have set this precedence to yeah. where, especially the, the boutique breeders, uh, have set this precedence in which a person buys a snake from you then all of a sudden you are indebted to them forever. Every time that they ask you a question, you answer it. Um, I have plenty of people that think they're completely entitled without ever even buying a snake
1: you mean to the, my
0: advice and stuff like that. So, yeah, I've seen that. Oh yeah. And, uh, and then also there's this very punk rock mentality that if you, um, Brian Barchak came out with a course people just shit on him so hard about it. Oh, yeah. um, I have a friend who did like a, a corn snake advice thing. People just shit on it. Cause like people don't want you to see money in this industry. They just want you to be poor and miserable. And that's why I have to start a new business. I love that. I love what I do and I love what I'm doing. Um, but at some point, they all eat their own. The more successful you get, the more people dislike you and I lose the very community that I came here to hang out in. Well, I I hear what you're saying. And, uh, you know, when you feel- That's not very negative. No, it's- very negative. Um, And one
1: thing that I will say that I think sits above this that actually, it's not to make us feel better, but it's actually something we can't control is that I think that the community structured in such a way like that, it's oppressive towards the readers and the customers sometimes because ultimately the society, humans at large, don't really care for reptiles and especially snakes. And so I guarantee you, if we were talking about dogs, we would not be having this conversation because the way people handle, think about dogs is almost like humans. So they're like, oh no, get it a sweater and send it to the therapist and uh, tell me the whole history and I'll pay $4,000 to do this. Um, We come from a world where like we appreciate snakes so much and we've dealt with the dog people or the cat people or whatever, then that's fine. But there's no, it's so niche. It's so niche that once you get into that world, it's like its own ecosystem of like cultural norms. And I, I do agree with that. It's, I can't really picture a way in which like the hobby will scale into the future unless there's some disaster, like some ecological disaster that suddenly makes snakes like the most viable pet or thing to keep. I think it'll probably stay like this for a long time.
0: And I think I think media is a great way to make a living, but also you have to pop, right? You have to be right places, right time. You need to put in the effort. And you're probably not going to be the best reptile breeder, maybe not even the best reptile keeper, but you're going to have to focus on that. And there's plenty of people who have proven that and they make great livings on it. Um, but that's not, I thought I was going to do that initially. It just never.
1: This industry is just like that too. Some of the ones that have the biggest presence in the internet or with media they don't actually make a good product or they don't right actually uh, service a customer they're just there to enter they become entertainers that that's what you know it's closest to and um are just fine it's just if, if that's what people want to do that's fine. not me not me either Not me either. yeah um but that's the that's the twist and the irony like i'm out i'm out here dancing and flexing in, in tights all day but it's actually not what people would think it's uh there's parts of it that, of course, I enjoy, but, uh, you know, I'm going to be 50 in, like, three more years, and uh, the body isn't something that goes on forever, so there'll come a time when I actually can't, like, pull it off as well, and I'm very well aware of that, so I'm having as much fun as I can with it now. That's how I think of it. I'm having a ton of fun with it now, because there will be a retirement one day for, uh, for that portion of what I do. Right. There's no more to go. I mean, I think, especially in the, I, I, one thing about gay communities is that um, there is more of a better sense of like people aging in a different way. So you do see a lot of uh, men in their sixties and seventies with like amazing bodies. And I'm like, mm, I hope I can do that.
0: <laughs> Find yourself a good hormone doctor.
1: Well, that's also that, I mean, that's another, that's why I love podcasts. Cause we can like get into that. Um, for straight men or, or gay men, I think uh, so many people are on HRT now and there's bigger discussions that are more open about that. I think it's just like uh, legalizing pot and things like that. We, sh- we should get with our legislators and see like what can be done for all sides of the equation. People should take a vote, referendums, because uh, I don't think those things are always harmful. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't take steroids, but I am on HRT, so... Uh, that's through a doctor you know it's like
0: it's just a legal version and it's and a legal
1: version. yeah yeah so i mean and effective, I? Right? yeah and, and, and then it, it does help it improves your life a lot yeah. but you know for those of you who wonder about hrt it's not like a magical thing like i don't look like bob paris back there on, the, on my wall I, I look fit for 46 but it doesn't it doesn't like you know if you, if you want to look like that at 46, you have to buy the illegal stuff
0: <laughs> on top of Yeah, that. and uh, diet and dehydrate yourself. That'll oh, help. Oh. That too,
1: that too, that too. But, but you know, for physique stuff, I, um, I'm i working really hard right now. Even though there's no events to go to, whether it's Comic-Con or conferences for my business, I, um, I'm i setting goals because I, I want to make sure, you know, I have fun creating a shape.
0: Yeah, so uh, Dominique in the comments, she said there's a great... Um, LGBTQ-friendly reptile group on Facebook. Not sure if you've chatted about it or seen it, but it's a great I, community. See, I,
1: I'm, I'm a member of one of the biggest corn snake groups in Facebook. I mean, it's thousands and thousands. And that's the only one I'm a member of. And uh, it's
0: fascinating. <laughs> in all the <laughs> there's a good lot of, ways, bad ways.
1: I mean, there's, there's, some, there's honestly, sometimes there's just sad stuff because you really see the mistreatment that is either taking place for the animal or will take place. Uh, so that, those just break my heart but uh there are you know little diamonds in the rough and sometimes certain uh, reptile owners they'll they'll give you great um anecdotal uh, advice or anecdotal um, input and so they, they it has it has had its place in general though I have to like cover my eyes sometimes when I go into the, the group but I'll check out the lgbtq group uh, I wonder how it'll be different I
0: wonder it's uh,
1: I feel like snake stuff is very universal. It. it I never think about uh, sexuality when I'm in
0: there. It just seems that snakes are dominated by a certain type of person, in which isn't very inclusive and isn't very diverse. Um, uh, oh, yeah, I guess I could see that. Um, but it, of course, snake groups are different because it is very, honestly, the base is a lot more female. The base is, a, there's a lot more feminine energy to it. If you go to ball pythons, you're looking at meatheads, people who are not exactly cool with everything. It's a little bit different.
1: Now I get what you're saying. And I could, I could totally see that. Uh, Cause even just in regular life, you know, uh, I had somebody came to service the air conditioner the other day and they are like, you have a snake or whatever. And uh, They were like talking about like the ideas they have of like what a snake owner is, and they're like, yeah, it's like a, like a you know macho kind of dude with like lots of tattoos and stuff. And um, I mean, I think if anything, the only place I fit in with that is the the shaved head, maybe. But um, (laughs) I see what you're saying. And then this goes back to the the situation I've been in with TikTok and these uh, young gamers. See, for me, I'm just lucky. I, it's a combination of like nature, nurture, my parents, culture. I'm not afraid to walk into spaces that are not welcoming of gay people. I really am not. So if, if I got invited to a thing and they're like, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of homophobes at this thing, I'd be like, I don't care. I'm going to have a good time. But I forget that in my community, some people, you know, really feel put out or like it's, it's a shock and trauma. And so I do need to check out that group because I might meet some cool people who, uh, you know, I'd love to talk about the hobby with them, but my main people to talk about the hobby with are generally, who is it? It's actually with people who don't have one. Like my (laughs) couple of friends from college and things like that. I'll be like, here's what they ask. What's the snake doing? And I show them. But um,
0: yeah, Dominique said um, it's LGBTQIA reptile keepers and enthusiasts. So that's the name of the Facebook group.
1: Noted. I'm going to go check it out. I'm excited to, uh, to see what it's about. Uh, Cause, uh, I mean, it is a whole world unto itself. I love it. And, uh, there's so much more to, I feel like I'm learning every day from this animal, no matter what happens, constant, constant learning.
0: We all are. And if you're not, then you're probably doing it wrong. And that goes, you know, for everyone, every step of the process. I mean.
1: And and lifestyle, you know, you're thinking about how you want to craft your life going forward, not just balancing things, but you know, how do you want to make money? Do you want to travel? And so for me, um, you know, I'm, I hope I do the right thing, but um, at some point, my my snake will probably be in a 60 gallon or 70 gallon tank. So even just to double that, just to have two of those size gallons in my house, people think it's easy and they go, oh, you just, just stick it in there. And I'm like, no, I want to, I want to make sure I, I do it well for the animal and for myself and um, that I have a lifestyle that can match up to that. Cause I think one is easy, especially without kids and stuff. Like I can handle it, but two might actually be more complex
0: than I even realize. I think you got it. All right, good. I, I, have
1: mean, I my snake. Good sheds. Uh, it's getting longer. It's not underweight. It's not overweight. So just keep keep uh, rooting for me because uh, anyway. <laughs> well, like, people get pulled into it. You know, they want to overfeed it and things like that, but no, no we don't do that here.
0: Yeah. it's a, It's important to also not overthink it, right? You know, you're doing good. It's I doing know, well.
1: The animals smarter than than you, you know, all these people worry about like uh, I see, you know, so many people asking, oh, uh, it doesn't want to come out or it's been, you know, I don't see it what happened. And as long as you have a gradient, I'm like, this is what nature is like in your house. If you get too hot in the front windows because the sun is there, what do you do? You go to the back porch, like to cool up. Like it's not any different, but um, that's just from observing it and you know reading. So I don't know. Yeah, it's- you
0: think of snakes, like, hey, what is this giant ape doing? Uh, let me check out. You know, they're nervous. They're-
1: they don't have hair or uh, sweat. You know, like sweat glands. If it did, then it could just kind of hang out like in one spot, but they don't have that, so they have to move in order to uh, be you know help themselves. So. It's really fun.
0: Yeah. So, give me a little bit about, uh, you know, what you're doing now, the future of everything, and where people can check you out.
1: Great. Um, the way the year looks ahead for uh, LED Queens is uh, to continue what we're doing, and that's basically to tell the uh, showcase the lives of LGBTQ people in a way that. Just hasn't been done before, you know. Like we we live in such a celebrity culture, and it's like, oh, you know, gay actor and gay whatever, gay um, gay uh, congressman. Okay, great. But what really matters is day to day people, like the guy who's a barber at the end of the street, the FedEx driver, and that they're focused on fitness and that they're part of a community. The goal is to keep highlighting them, but then also release more products this year that just you know they're happy with, and so. Um, i'm coming up with the theme for what the collection will be this year but if anything you'll just see more of a refinement of what we do if you visit the website we have we, we work really hard on the user experience so we don't even do a, a carousel or banners or things like that we just show you the products we go here's a grade of 90 products here's the best stuff we got and uh, that that's that's where we really spend our, our brain time is to create a great user experience so there's that's that Uh, I've got two books coming out. So book three in the coil is coming out, and that's the one that has more snakes than before. It has these uh, mythical giant snakes that even fight each other, kind of like Godzilla. It's really great. Um, And I do have one more How to Kill Superhero book, which may or may not be this year. It should be this year, but again. And you can find those all through my website. They're also on ledqueens.com. So my website is is, uh, cesartorres.me. And then there is one uh, wild card, some big open question, which is, um, I don't know if I can call it a service yet, but whatever it is that I'm doing through TikTok and Twitch to provide a a validation for queer, gay, lesbian, and women gamers, because some of them are straight women who feel put out by bullies, uh, whatever I'm doing there, that's like a direction I'm going in, but I don't know exactly how it fits in the business it is part of the business now, cause we do rely on like Twitch subscriptions to do that. But if y'all wanna check that out, it's real simple. It's LED Queens on Twitch. I, I stream twice a week uh, and I'm on TikTok also. So th- that's the roadmap for now, Joe. But as you know, things can change drastically based on politics and uh, climate and the, the virus. So it could look really different in just a month, but um, that's where I'm at and uh, if anything, I think uh, what I would say is with the product, with LED Queens, uh, we're focusing on just keeping everything that we do as classics. So the catalog is always available. We're actually not retiring things. A lot of brands, they'll take away like the thing you loved. Do you hate that when they do that? They go, this was my favorite pair of glasses, and then it's gone forever. We're actually doing it in reverse because we're so niche. We're leaving everything that customers want and just continuing to make more of it. Um, and that's different than how we were handling it before we used to get rid of products t- or take them down after a season. So um, that's where things are at. And I'm also just enjoying my uh, corn snake. His name is uh, Mictlan, which is the the name of the underworld of the Aztec. So that's where all souls go in the afterlife. And uh, he's a hypo uh, snake. So orange and, and yellow and, and just beautiful. So my goal also for the year is to just uh, you know, have him have a good home and grow really huge. And uh, I guess that's my goal too, just to have a good shape and get huge. There you go.
0: <laughs> it all aligns so well. Yeah. you
1: so. we learn so much about their nutrition, like even for humans, like, I mean, people with dogs probably know this better, but now I go, okay. I mean, I do a good job of managing my, my body fat, but I'm like, oh, this is a lot easier once you have a pet. You know when you're overfeeding them what they look like and how it can damage their health. I'm like, I better just do this with myself. Don't overeat. Just keep it just what you need. There you go.
0: I know fit people with fat pets. I know overweight people with fit pets. Uh, It's it's funny,
1: man. I'm trying to to make them both align. He's more fit than me right now, technically. (laughs) But I'm trying to, like, become more like he is because – it's is their biology is just you know that's a whole I could talk for four hours just about what I know about their uh, nutrition like their digestive system like I still don't even know how the how they do it just mice and then they have these robust beautiful bodies I don't get it
0: yeah and just the the usage of calories in their body you know for someone who's doing bodybuilding when calories are so there's so many people who count their macros and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, it's very interesting.
1: <laughs> I mean, for what I do, and I don't do it professionally or anything, but I'm eating all day and it's real precise and it's constant calories. And with these animals, you know, I know, like, especially because I know macros of my own, like a mouse, it's a so- only a certain amount of protein. But yet they eat that once a week and they're able to build more muscle faster than a human. So they're optimized for this, but they also just don't move. That's the yeah. thing of it. They're just like, they're just sitting in there all day, like <laughs> not moving. So. And they're one big muscle. Yeah, but, but then you see how much strength they have. I remember when I, I got the the baby, the, the second time I ever handled him in the house, again, I was terrified. I was like, how is this thing so strong if it's so tiny? <laughs> um, and so they are a wonder of nature, as are many, all the animals, but I'm just glad that I chose to get one because it, it really has been, uh, you know, just... Inspiring, but he's he's doing well, and I can't show him to you today because he got fed uh, two days ago, and I usually wait almost three days.
0: You might as well when you have one animal and you you have that choice.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, why not? Why not? And then that gives me more handling time with him. But you know, you just get to know you get to know their patterns, like when they poop and all that stuff. So. Uh, It's real good, but maybe next time we talk, who knows, maybe I'll have a second one because I really want a second one. So if anybody who's watching, like any of the viewers, if you want to suggest a species, uh, send them my way. Uh, Right now, I would love either a corn snake or a Mexican black king snake, but- uh,
0: Have you been bit yet? No. There you go, we gotta get you a king snake so you can get uh, baptized. I think
1: a king snake would be good. I, I, I I do want one animal that will at least mistake me for food.
0: Yes, that's the perfect one.
1: Yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Because now I'm not terrified of the animal itself. Even, you know, even if if he were to bite me, like it's not a big deal because I, I see their the teeth now. But I'm telling you, that I, here's the thing. When I actually brought it home, I had actually never handled a snake. Even though I bought
0: it. Even and, in the store, you didn't handle
1: them. So uh, the, the owner, she brought it out and she showed it to me and she's like, oh, isn't it great? And I was like, yeah. But I just took a, a bold leap. I was like, I think I can do it and the first two months were real awkward because i just you know i was like i'm gonna kill it or it's gonna kill me <laughs> <laughs> the time i uh, ever fed it i don't know how it happened oh no second second time i handled it um it wriggled out and was going down like i have a bookcase it, it was going down into the wall because there's like a little hole that goes into the wall where the uh television uh stand like is drilled into it mm. terrifying so, yeah. uh, no, you know, they're just, I love those stories. But the rest has been pretty smooth, and uh, a king snake would be great. I'm, I'm okay being bitten.
0: There you go. There you got it. You mean, got it. That's, that's, that's
1: my only hope that I just taste
0: good. <laughs> All right. And as for me, you can check out uh, portcitypet.com have a bunch of uh, animals and products available. Uh, please go check out our sponsor, Focus Cubed Habitats. They're doing amazing functional. And with amazing forms and really, really interesting, very uh, forward thinking enclosures, the best enclosures and customer service. I know um, Carly, my friend Carly just reached out today. Cage manufacturers, they never get back to you in a decent timeline. They always take, you know, six months to ship you out things. This is not the case. Ashley gets back to you and it's her, you know, right away. And uh, they work really hard. They're doing great stuff. So please go check them out. She also just dyed her hair like purple, pink, and it's really fucking cool looking. Um, and uh, yeah, so go check out. They're all about making enclosures fun and having fun colors and uh, different well, things going uh, on.
1: We talked about them last time when you were on my podcast and I really have my eye on them. And uh, again, back to being a business owner, try, trying to figure out like, how can I save money for this thing? Cause uh, they would be great. One of
0: yeah, <laughs> it's one of the only aesthetic-looking uh, reptile enclosures yeah. that aren't just a black box or a fish tank.
1: Yeah, and I would love that. It would it would fit my aesthetic, but uh, we'll see if it fits my pocketbook.
0: <laughs> there you go. You have the purple and blue type of feel going on. You could.
1: Well, that's what I would love. I would actually love that because I I actually I mean th- this is like the gayest story, but like when I was looking at the two because it was two corn snakes that day when I was going to select it. And the other one now, I looking back, I know it was Anery, because uh, the the owner she was like, it's black, but it's now I know it's Anery, um, and I just remember thinking, I was like, I mean, I love the one I got, but I was like, oh, because he's orange and yellow, he will look great against all these other colors, which would be teal, purple, green, and I was like, for photos for sh- to show family and things like that, this is gonna pop like nothing else. And so, even now, for an enclosure, I'm like, well, what enclosure would just make him, you know, showcase those scales? That's that's where I'm at, and it would be those colors, like purple, blue, uh, green. Anybody who's a redhead knows this. Those are your best colors if you wear uh, <laughs> clothes. You know, you have red hair. It's purple, blue, green, teal. You
0: know, so that's where we're at. <laughs> well, I need I need some advice. I don't I don't know these things. I don't know my complimenting uh, colors here.
1: Yeah, just uh, let me know because I I do this for my customers too. So uh, I'm always glad to, to help people out because there's just things that just never work like uh, black and red people think it'll always look good, but there's very few people that can pull it off objects. Yes, like a race car. Yes, like some Corvette, whatever, but black and red is very difficult to, to pull off. So anyway, anytime you need that that color.
0: Straight men are lost in this world as far as what to wear, man. You'd be surprised.
1: Well, you know, a great way to learn it is uh by becoming a photography nerd. Because once you do that stuff, then you're like, Oh, the, the blue sky will always work with these other objects. And anyway, but you don't have the time for that. Your focus is the next the next page in your business life, getting more of a life, and then also just doing more more cool snake stuff.
0: So i don't get know. a life i like that me too i mean <laughs> i can
1: only tell you that and joke about it because i'm trying to get one too
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. you know, when i was in new york uh now that i live here especially because i started the the big part of the business here in chicago
0: the last almost five years no life and it's so, such a good city there's so many things yeah. to do so many people yeah uh,
1: it's amazing for the arts for music uh, street festivals and if you're a gay person it has one of the best Gay lives, LGBTQ, like scenes, and in, in the world. But uh, I was I was making donuts.
0: Well, I was have making. You, have you been out here to to Philly? Uh,
1: only once uh, when I was living in New York. I, I went to visit friends for the weekend. Gorgeous. I almost thought, I was like, how much would a place cost here? I want to live here.
0: <laughs> it's gorgeous in its spots. It has its, you know. But, well, I think when you visit, it's gorgeous. When you
1: live there, it's like a different story. It has its areas. I, I liked it. Very East Coast, you know, like the architecture, yeah. everything always feels like the East Coast.
0: Has that filth to it.
1: Mm-hmm, which I like, I yeah. actually
0: pretty... like that. I miss the grind, because yeah.
1: Chicago is very clean. I gotta say, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, not like uh, some parts of New York and stuff like that, and Philly, filth.
1: No, I and you know, the stories about rats in New York are true. Uh, <laughs> every, you know, every single day, way too close. Uh, I was walking with a friend and we were just in a park, like a public park, beautiful, you know, Manhattan, like Sexton City kind of garbage. And a rat walked right over her foot and she was wearing sandals. Uh-oh. And not a little rat, it's the kind you would feed to a, like a boa constrictor, you know, it's like it walked over her, her foot. So um, that I don't miss.
0: <laughs> That's the day in the life of a true New Yorker, I guess
1: that is a life i mean i was just throwing out my garbage every time i threw out the garbage bag i really was scared to death that a rat would would come out because they do
0: have you <laughs> seen that the the morgan spurlock rats documentary yes oh it's good It's oh, really yeah good. <laughs> that's all about that
1: and i i know i keep like chatting more but out of all the animals in the world like spiders don't bother me insects i'm pretty okay with uh snakes clearly i like but there is one animal that will make me scream like a child and get on top of the table, and that is rodents, like live rodents. This is why really? I'll never give my snake live rodents. I cannot. I cannot, cannot. They have to be frozen.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe don't tonight. get a ball python then.
1: Like kryptonite. Yeah, maybe not the ball python. No, ball pythons, I, I mean, I will say no disrespect to them, but they are just too too mellow for me. I do need something with personality who... On occasion, may have to bite me. That's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For me, that, that animal.
1: You know, I've only had him nine months, but now when I pick him up, I pick him up in a full coil. Like, so I pick him up. He doesn't squirm or wait, and he wants to just stay. He's even taking naps, just like sitting there, like coiled up. So I'm like, is this what he's going to be like as a whole life?
0: <laughs> they, it fun. only gets, they only get more comfortable, yeah, more accustomed to you. But I think a,
1: a different snake to have with a different personality might be fun when a, that's maybe a little feistier would be good. We'll see.
0: Uh, we'll get you a carpet python or something, something a little bit more interesting, a little bit more like aggressive looking than the aesthetic.
1: Because the ones in my books, I, I don't I don't have to show you, but I'm really inspired by vipers and uh, rattlesnakes because clearly like the Aztecs, those were the snakes that they put in their artwork.
0: Mm. But
1: the way their eyes are, I mean, they they look angry. Like, I kind of want a snake that has that look. So, <laughs>
0: Now I want to, and I know that we're totally getting. We were trying to do an outro here, and now we're getting all types of carried away. But,
1: yeah, but I don't. I don't want to like send it off the rails. So we gotta go. We gotta go.
0: <laughs> oh no! I wanted to show you. Uh, you you got to get a jungle carpet or something like this.
1: Yes. Well, I've seen your uh, this. You you have one on your channel, right? Isn't that the one that's always mm-hmm. biting you? Uh,
0: not <laughs> necessarily. Mine have always been pretty cool.
1: You were like, I got to watch out because it's going to want to uh,
0: get off the hook. Yeah, I oh, yeah. that is, yeah, I know what you
1: talked about. That kind of like angrier phase, I, that's what I want. That's beautiful. Those colors don't even look like nature made. They look like man-made. That's
0: amazing. I mean, that's the thing. These animals start like brown and black in the wild, mm-hmm. um, but we've bred them, lime bred them over time, over years, and now they're like – blazing yellow there's even some that are a little bit neon greenish how difficult are they to keep um they're very easy it's pretty much like a a corn snake um people are going to hate me for saying that it's just different temps just a little bit warmer oh look there's a carpet right there do
1: that if it's just warmer yeah i can definitely do that
0: yeah and honestly they're not they always eat frozen thawed and they're not very uh, particular about their conditions or their food or temperature changes. Um, this is my buddy Tony of selective scales. He actually breeds green tree pythons together with carpet pythons.
1: Oh, they're beautiful. Are they very alert? You know, are they the kind of snake that like is constantly tracking or looking,
0: looking at you? Very sensitive to heat. So they will, uh, yeah, if you're breathing on them, they will they will notice.
1: Got it. Oh, that, that's because awesome. they they well, they have uh, pits right on their face.
0: Yeah, so if you see here, these are all heat pits. They're
1: all the heat pits, and then they have the eyes that I like because the vertical ones we put pupils. on my covers is the uh, the vertical uh, pupil.
0: Yeah, could be you.
1: That really could be. Uh, that, <laughs> I think you've started something.
0: <laughs> yeah, more aggressive, still easy to keep.
1: Yeah, I'm okay with that. I feel comfortable enough with that only because of what's happened so far with this one where um yeah, I and I just feel bad for some people. I've actually seen uh, people talk about they're like I've had my snake for th- 3 years and I'm still afraid of getting bitten. And I'm like it's not they're not that bad. It's like how like a suction cup with a couple of like velcro pieces on it.
0: Just depends what it is. You can get okay,
1: and I have no intention of getting the big ones, y'all. I'm not getting, I'm not getting a Burmese or, uh, you know, the, the big stuff. I just need something that fits my life. And that might be one of them. They're beautiful.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, let's put a bow on this one. Uh, Cesar, thanks for hanging out. Thank you.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. Go check out my podcast with him. If you want to hear more, uh, snake centered stuff, we talk plenty of business, um, Hopefully, you guys don't mind if I keep on doing these kind of hybrid y, maybe not even 100% snaky, just having fun and talking because I enjoyed this one.
1: Yeah, uh, it was great. Thank you so much for, for having It's an honor because I've, I've seen everybody who's been on your show. So I was like, me? Thank you.
0: Yeah. Ah, yeah. Thanks for coming. Thank you, everyone, for watching. And I will catch you hopefully next.